The central apparatus, the central statistical apparatuses in China are fairly professionalized and actually want to do a good job. They actually, you know, they're not necessarily like faking stuff. It's all those lower level officials who are basically being graded on the numbers they turn on, turn in. They have huge incentives to at least fudge through explicit colonial co coercion, through neocolonialism, through um, you know, kind of the NGO industrial complex, through all these things, we have foisted small family norms on countries around the world. And we've kind of sold them a bill of goods and said like, look, if you reduce your family size, it's gonna cause rapid industrialization. This is bullshit. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Lyman Stone, a demographer, a former employee at AEI, and now pursuing a PhD in McGill University, which we'll discuss. He is one of the most interesting people who posts data on marriage, on fertility, on pronatalism, and we get into all of that in our conversation, as well as the role of religion in public life, the shifting political valences of pronatalism and of family policy, and what that means for his practical political strategy to essentially try to get birth rates up. If you like the show, the number one thing you can do to support us is to let a friend know, either in person or online. That not only helps us, but hopefully helps a friend discover something that he or she finds interesting or informative or hopefully both. Without further ado, here's Lyman Stone. So uh, welcome, Lyman. Uh, you're here uh, ostensibly to uh, talk about uh, falling birth rates and pronatalism. And when I hope we're it's not at... only ostensibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, and looking at all of these uh, birth rates across the world, it does seem like South Korea specifically is an exception, right? 0 0.78. I'm not sure if that's the latest number. Um, uh, children for women well be well below the 2.1 of replacement. Um, and really, like, not even any Asian country is remotely close to this, right? So, so that might be a good place to start. Why is South Korea specifically um, ha a country with such a low birth rate? You've committed one of the cardinal sins, uh, and that is Mongolia erasure. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> Mongolia's fertility is close to three children per woman. Um uh, there is, in fact, a relatively well-educated, dem relatively democratic, uh, you know, high life expectancy, relatively egalitarian, uh, at least semi-industrialized uh, and highly urbanized country in Asia with above replacement fertility, and that is Mongolia. Um, now, everybody laughs when I mention Mongolia because they're like, but it's, you know, nomads. And it's actually not true. Urbanized Mongolians in Ulaanbaatar I have about three kids. So um, there is an exception case, uh, though it's, it is quite the exception. Um, but you're right. But besides Mongolia, this is pretty much um, East Asia's very low fertility. Um, Korea is not actually as much of an exception as it looks like. Hmm. Um, Korea's really low rates are particularly dragged down by Seoul, which is even lower than 0.78. Um, but if you were to go to Shenzhen, Shanghai, Beijing, um, you'll find similar numbers, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 uh, kids per woman. Um, 
Right, uh, so it's about density. Things... Well, no, you'll find similar things in Taipei, but you won't find the same in Tokyo, right? So Japan mm-hmm. has the highest fertility of any of kind of the urbanized, uh, highly urbanized, highly educated, industrialized East Asian uh, countries. And, and Tokyo is, I think, 1.2. Um, so Japan's kind of the success story, shockingly, uh, for these this family of countries. Um, Singapore, I think. I mean, one point two. That's that's pretty hard to call a success. Yeah, I know, but, uh, I know, right? Yeah, yeah, I see that. I see that sort of yeah. tongue in cheek. But um, you know, one point two is a lot better than point seven or point eight. That's um, fair. Uh, so um, yeah, it, it's real bad uh, for fertility in a lot of East Asia. Um, we can rule out some possible explanations, um, right? We know that this is not because Korean women just don't want kids, right? We have surveys that ask Korean women, Japanese women, Taiwanese women, uh, Hong Kong women, Singaporean women, to some extent mainland Chinese women, how many kids they want. Um, You know, they don't say four. Um, Chinese women tend to say, I don't know, anywhere from 1.4 to 2 on average. Uh, Korean and Japanese Korean women tend to say two to two, two to two point five. Japanese women tend to say somewhere between like two point two and three. Um, but the point is that's a lot higher than you know for Korean women you know call it two call it two. That's a lot higher than point eight. So this is not that Korean women just like as a group or Korean men who have similar preferences. It's not that they just like as a group were like we no longer desire children. Uh, that that didn't that didn't happen. Um, so we can rule out just like the plain not wanting kids explanation. It's going to be more complicated than right. that. Yeah, um, I, I am trying to draw a more causal story and really start that off as the foundation. I know that's often pretty hard. Uh, let, let's try zooming out a bit, right? So, so, so far, we've been talking about East Asian countries. Of course, uh, countries around the world have had their uh, fertility rate dropping. But East Asia does seem to be... Um, at least compared to the States, maybe not compared to some parts of Europe, but at least compared to the States, um, uh, a bit lower. Um, so, so why is that? The, so you want to tell a causal story and obviously the world is driven by causes, but they're not the same everywhere. So this is the thing is that people look at East Asia and they say, well, there must be an East Asian fertility story because low in all these places. But in fact, they've all had quite different experiences. Hmm. Right. I mean, the reason that fertility is low in mainland China is at least partly because of the legacy of the one child policy. The one child policy was only operating in mainland China. Right. That's not going to explain low Japanese fertility. Right. Super low fertility in Korea is its own beast. Right. And part of that. And I mean, this people laugh, but I mean, I'm prepared to make a serious argument that part of that is because of K-pop. Um, uh, that, I, wait, I, I do want to hear that out. I do want to hear that out. Many, well, okay, many K-pop so, enjoyers in this audience. Okay, so they're, like they're you know, I've got nothing. Like as a musical <laughs> style, I have nothing against K-pop. Okay, like whatever. You know, I, I love a good you know large group dance routine. Big fan. But um, one of the problems that we see in fertility around the world is that it's highly sensitive to uh, media representations. So there's a great study using like differential topography in East and West Germany uh, that shows that like towns in East Germany that had topography that favored getting better, more TV broadcasts from West Germany had lower fertility because West German broadcasts 
um, on their like TV shows and stuff, they showed smaller families on average. Okay. So like small family norms were contagious. They spread to some East German towns, not others, and that had long run fertility effects. Okay. Now, um, what does that tell us about K-pop? Well, if you know anything about K-pop, or if like me, you maybe have a goddaughter who is obsessed with it. And so you've watched like some of these documentaries about like K-pop bands and stuff of like the story behind the band or whatever. Um, then what you know is they're all single. And the reason for that is if they get a serious partner, a spouse, a child, like their, their recording contract is done. Like their recording companies essentially require them to be single and childless. Um, right. This is like contractual and because they're enormously popular what what this has done is this has actually systematically created a celebrity culture of childlessness singleness and unattachedness for korea and for basically all the countries in the korean cultural sphere so i've actually shown that in the u.s um korean women have very low fertility actually korean women in the u.s have about the same fertility as korean women in korea which really Ixnays the idea that this is just about like Korean economic institutions. Um, right. And in particular, Korean women in America who speak Korean have very low fertility, um, which really points to the idea of cultural transmission. Now, is it that there's something like anti-family inherent to Koreanness? No, there's not. That's absurd. Um, uh, but I think it's entirely reasonable to suggest that Korea's culture today uh, is at least as much about BTS as it is about like neo-Confucian bureaucracy or something. Okay. Like you get these explanations like, oh, Confucianism leads to low for, you know, I'm like, nobody's <laughs> in Korea today. Um, uh, that, that, you know, K-pop is actually a really huge cultural factor and it is systematically almost contractually childless and single. Uh, and as a result, um, it creates a norm of childlessness, singleness, um, uh, you know, to the extent that K-pop stars, you know, advertise their lifestyle, it's about conspicuous consumption, travel, you know, purely right. can, individualized Can we zoom in on the contract point? Yeah. This is really interesting to me. Um, it'll also probably be interesting to parts of my audience. So, so are they contractually obligated to just not be in relationships or have Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, are like... Or just like they just have to lie about it. So, I mean, you know, it depends on the, the company, right? There's different recording companies. I know BTS, like, has their own recording company, so I don't know if they have some other arrangement. But, um, gosh, I was watching – there's a documentary on Netflix about one of these bands. I forget which one. And the last scene is the girls in, like, a coffee shop sitting around talking about family. And it's so dark. They, they're talking about, like, would you ever want to have kids? And they're like, oh, I don't know, maybe someday when I'm 40. And I'm like, you don't oh understand goodness. how biology works. Um, but what's, but you know, okay. So like my goddaughter, uh, I'm like sharing here. Right. But she, she lives in, she's a Hong Kong person. She lives in Hong Kong. Um, she wanted to be a K-pop star. She, you know, did auditions and all this. Um, but like, so through that process, we learned a lot and like, you know, they're housed in dormitories. They're under constant surveillance. Like even when you become a big star, like some of the recording companies, yeah, you, you're, you're contracted into not having a partner because again, if you have a partner, you know, you can't be that kind of like generalized crush interest of the Korean population, right? Like part of the point of K-pop stars is everybody can have a crush on you. Um, yeah, that does seem to but be. But that doesn't work if you have a partner. Yeah, I think I've heard pretty similar things about um, about Western movie stars as well, that at least they have to kind of keep those things 
uh, they have to keep those things hushed yeah. up. Yeah. But, so, I mean, celebrity culture is really important. There's, you know, I could go on, but there's another great study that looked at um, uh, variation in exposure to soap operas in Brazil in like the 60s, 70s, hmm. 80s, and 90s. And they showed like, you know, different channels were available in different areas at different times, topography matter, all this stuff. And they showed the areas that were randomly shocked with more exposure to these soap operas had lower fertility because the characters in the show had smaller family sizes than was typical in Brazil at that time. And then the children that were born in those smaller families tended to, were more likely to have names shared with soap opera characters. So they're able to show not only is this like, you know, exposure leads to lower fertility, but like there's an actual correlation of like child naming that like the parents are almost conscious of this influence and are reproducing you know, media representations of family norms in their own families. Um, there's another set of studies looking at this at 16 and pregnant in the U.S. with teen pregnancy. Um, I, I mean, I could go on. Like, there, there's there's fascinating. Like, there's actually one looking at like a court case in the 1870s that triggered the British fertility transition. There's a nice paper on like secularization in mid 18th century France that that goes there. I have an argument about 18th century Massachusetts that that's but like cultural explanations for fertility change are really, really, really potent. Um, particularly, I would say, for the exception cases. Places like Korea that seem uniquely extreme. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So there's this discussion, you know, or this debate between the free speech absolutists and maybe more utilitarian thinkers on the issue of like mass shootings or suicides right that if you cover those more mm -hmm. that there will be you know more mass shootings or more suicide and they say or the utilitarians would say well in this case obviously there's when there's consequences to uh, this reporting then you should be you should be clamping down on it you should be at least avoiding publishing say the offenders names you should avoid uh, components that are not essential to the story but nonetheless may incentivize more of this behavior uh, is the same thing true for fertility or for basically media mm -hmm. that would essentially reduce the fertility if um if prevalent enough yeah i mean there's good evidence on social contagion of fertility behaviors there's one really kind of classic study that um they used a couple large companies and they like mapped out where people's desks were basically. Um, and they showed that having a coworker who sat near you, who had a baby increased your odds of having a baby in the, the near future. Um, uh, there, there's actually a lot of studies showing fertility contagion. Um, so that suggests that like, you know, uh, presentation of fertility probably matters for fertility outcomes, but I think it's a bit wrong to phrase this as like a free speech thing. Like, um, you know, there's kind of this like marketplace of speech delusion that goes on. Like, like the way speech works is that, you know, we're all speaking and, you know, everybody just makes like a choice on who to listen to. But like that, that's not how speech actually occurs. Like take something like social media, you post something and then, you know, the company that you're posting on makes a decision about how to algorithmically represent Right. Like it's not like people just choose to hear you in some like totally open market. Um, there, there's no such thing as a totally open market. You know, basic question of 
you know, do they present as top posted or bottom posted, right? Do you, do you have new messages appear at the bottom and scroll up or scroll down? Like that impacts what kinds of things people see. You know, do you do random shuffling? Do you do like a catch-up procedure? None of these are censorship. These are all totally like facially reasonable ways of presenting information, you know, neutrally, but they're, they're not in fact random. Um, and so, um, you know, we don't live in an environment where there's just like some free market for, for listening to other people's speech. So on some level, I, I don't think that there's a libertarian case to be made um, because like there's not a market here. Like somebody, some company is just choosing what you, what you see. And given the fact that it, that they have to choose, right. A choice has to be made about what you get to see. I would say, let's make it a choice that, that meets some social objective function that, that is reasonably inoffensive. So like, you know, if a, if a company made a choice to systematically show you content that they knew would make you angry, miserable, sad, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think many of us would be like, okay, that doesn't seem reasonable. Like I'd like them to be more neutral than that. Um, but what if, what if a company knew that they could systematically show you content that would make you happier? You know, would they have an obligation to do that? Um, you know, I don't know if they would, you know, and also, you know, what's the quality of evidence there? Um, but I think at least, um, you know, it, it would be reasonable to do an experiment to say, hey, you know, maybe maybe Facebook should experiment with like, you know, algorithmically upweighting pictures of smiling babies um, or right. parents sharing pictures of their kids. You know, let's at least try and figure out what effect this has so that in the future we could decide what we want to do. Like we should at least know what would happen. Um, and yeah, then we so, can make a decision later on. So one area where we might have some early data on this is that China is experimenting with this, right? I'm not sure how transparent they are with what policies they're putting in, but we can kind of measure the effect on, say, Chinese TikTok and see what that's having on a population level. Is there any kind of data collection there or is it just kind of too difficult to measure in China? There's lies, damn lies, statistics and Chinese statistics. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of expecting um, that this would happen, yeah. Right, I mean, so... Just explain for the audience why Chinese statistics are so bad. Well, they're fake. I mean, they're made up. Um, I mean, it, okay, let me let me back up. Okay, so <clears throat> Americans have this fake idea of China, that China's this authoritarian, authoritarian dictatorship where a powerful guy at the center is controlling everything in China. That is not how China works. The way China actually works is that like your local county party officials, the communist party officials for like your county are like wildly dictatorially powerful. Like county officials in China have so much power. They control like business licensing. They control like a lot of like moral policy. Like, you know, China has lots of censorship and stuff like that. A lot of that is run like at the county level. Um, these local bureaucrats in China actually have enormous power power. China is authoritarian, but most of the actual authoritarian power is really locally uh, established. And so within China, you get huge variation in policies around, around the country. So how does the center of China at Beijing control these powerful local bureaucrats? And the answer is promotion. The center 
controls who gets promoted upwards to higher positions. In getting promoted to a higher position, you get more power, you get more money, you get more prestige. Your family members are going to have more business opportunities, right? So basically, you want to be promoted. And so the real power that the center has is promotion. So what the center does in Beijing is they basically are setting rules for party members around the country. The way you get promoted is if you accomplish such and such a goal. For a long time, when it came to family policy, that goal was, you know, enforce the one-child policy, prevent high fertility. Now that's starting to change and it's getting the vibe that like, hey, you'll get promoted if you can successfully increase the birth rate in your area. So like cities and counties and regions are rolling out all these experimental policies to try and boost fertility. The problem with this is that these local officials and state officials, province officials, are also the people in charge of reporting the data by which they are graded. Right. So they they set the policies and they also are the ones who report the data to determine if they successfully met their policies. Now, there is some accountability on this. You know, China has audits. Like it's not a totally, totally nonsense system. Um, but the upshot of this is that actually the central apparatus, the central statistical apparatuses in China are fairly professionalized and actually want to do a good job. They actually, like the guys in like the, the National Statistics Bureau of China, like, you know, they're not necessarily like faking stuff. The problem is it's all those lower level officials who are basically being graded on the numbers they turn on, turn in. They have huge incentives to at least fudge, you know, to at least allow some slippage in their favor on various things. So, for example, um, right after China released like its, you know, two child policy and then its three child policy, births cratered. They fell dramatically. Now, that might that might seem counterintuitive, but these are long term policies. Okay, so if you're a local official. And you want to take credit for improving this. You want your baseline early in the policy to be as low as you can possibly get it. Right. Right. Now, does that mean those numbers are fake? No, not necessarily. But like, as soon as those policies came out, like local officials had all the incentives in the world to make sure that the early year numbers were as bad as possible. Um, now, uh, there's other biases like, the recent census in China um, chose to make heavy use of administrative data. That's the Huku Huku system. I forget how to say it. I, I don't speak Mandarin. Um, I speak a little bit of Cantonese, but not Mandarin. Um, and uh, um, uh, and the problem with the this system is that it it has really biased coverage, particularly of of rural people. Um, and so there's debates about how reliably it tracks population, all, the, all these things. But the point is, statistics from China are not very reliable. They're not very transparently reported. And they're getting less and less transparently reported. Increasingly, tr China is treating foreign researchers trying to collect normal data that every country publishes as like espionage. Um, right, yeah. So it's getting harder and harder to get semi-reliable data out of China. Yeah, that, that does seem to be the case among people I know as well. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you had fairly extensive evidence of this kind of cultural effect. Uh, what is that evidence? Where where are we getting it from? So I've mentioned some of these, something like, you know, this 
There was this study of like East and West German uh, television broadcasts. Um, there's the Brazilian one. There's MTV uh, 16 and Pregnant in the US. But one of my favorites, uh, I mentioned in passing, but I'll, I'll get more into it here, is something called the Bradlaugh Besant trial. Um, so, backstory here is uh, in the 1830s, there was an American doctor in Massachusetts named Thomas Knowles uh, who published a man a book called Fruits of Philosophy. And it was basically home remedies for common problems that his patients had. And part of it was a guide to contraception and abortion. Now, he was kind of a quack. The guidance that he gave his, pe- his patients on contraception and abortion was wrong. Like if you used his manual, you would not have had fewer children. Okay. It was scientifically fake. It was wrong. But he published this book and he was immediately thrown in in prison because it was deemed obscene because of the contraception and abortion, which is illegal. Okay. That's the 1830s. Fast forward to the 1860s. The United Kingdom has been industrialized for a century. The UK was the first place to really seriously industrialize. Um, it's been industrialized for a century, and um, uh, uh, but its fertility rate didn't fall. Uh, the UK's fertility rate did not decline when it industrialized. It became urban and wealthy without falling fertility. Um, notably, France did have falling fertility, even though it didn't industrialize as rapidly. Um, we could get to that in a second as well. Um, so the UK fertility falls or has not fallen, even though it industrialized. Then um, there's this group called, um, I think it's the Secular League or something. Um, but they're, they're a group of secularists who want, you know, a less religious form of government for the UK. They find Fruits of Philosophy, this, this book from Thomas Knowles. They publish it uh, in, in the UK in full awareness that it violates um, British censorship laws. This triggers a court case called the Bradlaugh Besant trial. Bradlaugh versus Besant, plaintiff versus defendant. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and this case is sensational. It's covered all over the place, um, not everywhere, but in lots of places. Uh, the case is in 1871. In 1871 is precisely when the UK's fertility starts falling for the first time. Now. For a long time, people have thought, boy, that seems like more than a coincidence, but it couldn't be proven that the Bradlaugh-Bassant trial caused fertility decline. But recently, there's a phenomenal paper that came out that used newspaper newspaper records from around the UK, and they show that in towns where the newspaper covered the trial, whether, doesn't matter if it was positive or negative coverage, doesn't matter what side they took, if they just covered the trial, in those towns, fertility declined. But it didn't in towns that didn't cover it. Okay? Right. So where there was discussion of contraception and abortion, fertility fell. Where censorship norms held, fertility didn't fall. Then they extend and they say, well, okay, Britain had colonies. And they show that Anglophone fertility in Canada began to fall at the same time, but Francophone fertility did not. Why? Hmm. Because Anglophone Canadians were reading British newspapers. Francophone Canadians were not. 
They show the same thing for Anglo for Anglo settlers in South Africa, but not for Dutch speaking settlers in South Africa. They show the same for recent British immigrants in the United States, but not for American natives. They show that that's also when Australia's fertility uh, began to decline, such as it is. There was a very small population at the time. Um, I find this paper very compelling. Some people disagree, but I think it's very compelling. And it's a nice example of how culture matters. Um, mere introduction of the notion that you might limit family size, even though the actual book didn't give you correct advice about how to do it. You know, Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we could go back farther. Another example I really, really am fascinated why by, uh, you can read about it in a book called Mabiki, is from the, the uh, Tokugawa period in Japan. In the 1500s, uh, the Tokugawa shogunate was really worried about starvation in Japan because, I mean, it was a subsistence society, uh, very densely populated, dependent on rice cultivation, which is very land intensive. Um, and so they published an edict um, saying that you could no longer divide inheritance among your kids. One kid had to get it all. Um, and they published an edict and you can read the text of it today. It, it's so modern sounding. They say, look, overpopulation is going to cause resource constraints. That's going to lead to starvation. We have to cut fertility rates. Like they say this in like the 1500s. Okay. Um, at the same time, they begin promoting a different form of Buddhism, a few, which gets called funerary Buddhism, um, which supplies sort of a moral framework for justifying a smaller family size versus other forms of Buddhism, which were popular at the time in Japan, like Pure Land Buddhism. Um, and the result of this whole thing is that in the 1500s in Japan, Japan's fertility falls dramatically. It falls basically to like replacement levels once you control for child mortality. And it does that through contraception. It does it through abortion, but it mostly does it through infanticide. Right, something like half of babies born in mo in many parts of Japan were being killed by their parents in their first month of life. Um, we see similar rates of infanticide, by the way, in like the Hawaiian Islands, uh, in like the the early 1800s during a kind of uh, different kind of subsistence crisis. Um, uh, but the point is, so fertility collapses in Japan basically because of a combination of government policy, this inheritance rule and some public pressure, and then also a new cultural norm, funerary Buddhism. Now that persisted for a long time, but then during the Meiji restoration, the government was like, ah, crap, you know what you need? If you want to industrialize and have an empire, you need workers and soldiers. So if you want workers and soldiers, what do you do? You got to breed. But we've spent centuries telling people not to do that. So then they, you know, launched this whole public campaign against infanticide in favor of big families. Um, they, they also did some policy changes. They basically implemented a new police force to surveil pregnancies to ensure women weren't having abortions. Um, and the result of this was that while Japan was rapidly industrializing and rapidly educating, its fertility rates rose from 4 to 6.5 alongside rapidly increasing wealth and education. Now, the result of a rapidly growing Japanese population was rapidly expanding need for resources, food and fuel in particular, which meant that they needed to develop an empire, which meant that they needed to conquer lands, which 
you know, you know the history from there, a series of wars, uh, some unpleasantness with China, um, and some cities in nuclear fire. Right. Yes, we've all heard that story. So that's that's very interesting, actually. So there are these cultural factors. Sorry, I, I should field. jump in just one other thing. The reason I really like these two examples is they're both before modern contraception. People sometimes hmm. have this idea that fertility is about contraception. It's not. Contraception definitely, you know, enables some new cultural forms to take root and, and be practicable. But at the end of the day, pre-contracepting societies found ways to do this. I could point to other examples. I mean, Sri Lanka is a case where we've got good evidence for like the 1700s of like near replacement fertility. There are, there are numerous historical societies. Um, there, there are Chinese lineages that we have good records for going back centuries where they were at replacement rate fertility for centuries on end um, through a practice known as a serial polygamy. Um, the point is, you know, when there are cultural, cultural and economic reasons to have small families, life finds a way. Right. It's very interesting. I think I, I probably agree with you in that, you know, people underrate the cultural explanations, but, but that claim seems a bit too strong for me, actually. Like, like if birth control disappeared, if modern, you know, chemical birth control, condoms, so on, abortions, just disappeared everyone forgot how to use them forgot how to manufacture them um is the argument here that there would be no long-run difference uh not none but um okay so in the 1700s uh u.s fertility rates were like you know between six and eight kids per woman okay um in the 1960s before uh or from 1900 to 1960 so this period of basically kind of modern culture-ish, but not modern contraception. You know, very few people were contracepting. U.S. fertility averaged about 2.5 kids per woman. Okay. So the difference from, you know, 6 to 8 to 2.5 was achieved without contraception or abortion on any grand scale. Okay. Right. Contraception and abortion maybe got us from 2.5 to like 1.7. Okay, maybe. But there were also other cultural changes in there. So how much are those things really explaining? And then you have to come, come to the other question, which is why did people want contraception and abortion, right? Like condoms as a technology like have existed for millennia, why did demand for them suddenly rise? Right. right? Because culture changed, right? It's not random when technologies come into existence, right? Technology responds to demand. It's not an exogenous shock. Hmm. This is very interesting because, of course, there are some people who tell exactly the opposite story, right? I'm not sure if you know about Mary Harrington, but... Uh, she writes she writes that the the sexual uh, revolution was primarily a kind of reaction to technology and a reaction to basically the demand for um, the demand for entrepreneurial or for um, essentially management talent right for women for for office workers and that's you know this kind of period of industrialization happened 
that mm-hmm. you know you had these workplaces yeah. that essentially separated men from their families you had the second wave of um uh, you had in response to that the women's movement and this kind of uh th- this kind of cultural shift in response to that and the next wave of the feminist movement in response to um in response to essentially the availability of birth control um yeah. right so, so, so she she has this argument great... Yeah, a great book on uh, and... this is is one called um, uh, um, Birth Control and American Modernity. It's by Trent McNamara. And he goes through these historical archival sources, uh, particularly like letters sent to Margaret Sanger um, throughout the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s of like women requesting help with birth control. And he shows pretty convincingly, I think, that the demand for birth control um, arose in the you know the 1900s, teens, 20s, 30s. That is the origin of the demand for birth control in the U.S. Mm. Um, and it's largely a product of companionate marriage. Um, this idea that um, what we should want out of a marriage is not the foundation of sort of a family business. I don't mean that in, in the sense of like literally a shop, but like the family as a business, right? That you produce children, you go on, you know, like all these things, but rather that the purpose of marriage is to find a companion, a romantic life partner who meets your psychosocial needs. And this emerges uh, in the 1900s, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, right. This is the genesis of, of high birth control demand because the purpose of marriage changes. Um so high birth control demand doesn't really begin with like unmarried women, um, you know, wanting to have disconnected sex. It starts with married women feeling like, you know, a third, fourth, fifth, sixth child is a threat to their vision of what marriage should be. Um, oh, then it spreads from them into unmarried women. And the gen- now, where I, I agree with Mary very strongly that once the technology is widely available, it then has follow on cultural effects, right? This is not a unidirectional process. This is a causal loop. Culture causes technology shocks. Technology shocks then cause other changes in culture and other changes in culture then cause subsequent technology shocks. Yeah. (coughs) And I, and I think that she actually, she says something pretty similar, right? She calls this big romance that, that essentially the purpose of marriage changed from this kind of economic contract uh, to this kind of, to, to this kind of self-fulfillment narrative. Yes. Right. Absolutely. What what she calls big romance is going to be very similar to, she's doing a good thing and kind of translating the sociology into like normal person language. Uh, But (laughs) the, the technical term would be essentially companionate marriage right right so so you know let's peel the let's peel the onion one layer deeper like why did this why did this happen why did people suddenly go to thinking you know that that's the point of marriage i actually i actually want to find i I want to find a companion at marriage right Mm -hmm. what what is the what, what is the genesis of that um that is somewhat debated as all things I see. are. No, no worries. Um, give, give your best guess. But uh, there's a variety of things going on. Um, there's changes in education, right? As we get people becoming more educated, um, 
it changes your sense of of uh, what is meaningful in life. Um, there's changes in religion, right? Uh, Protestant right. religion in America, in particular, really gives rise to this sort of um, individual emotive conception of of relationships. Your relationship with God becomes highly sort of emotionally charged. Um, so, you know, the emergence of, of companion marriage is, you know, it's not a surprise that the same generations give us like the, the emergence of kind of modern Pentecostalism, um, modern sort of charismatic evangelicalism. Um, uh, and that, you know, companion marriage does particularly emerge among Protestants, not, not Catholics and Orthodox in America. Really? Um, That spreads, but, um, uh, so, and it's also, you know, Protestants, you know, in, in 1900, Catholics and Protestants had the same teachings about birth control and abortion. Okay. Um, the, you know, if you go back to 1850, Protestant counties, particularly Lutheran counties in the United States had higher fertility than Catholic counties. Um, this whole Catholic fertility differential that people talk about is a product of the 20th century. Okay. So um, you have to keep in mind that Protestantism went through an extraordinary change in the first half of the 20th century, particularly kind of mainline liberal Protestantism. Um, but then also you see this change in kind of this ecstatic evangelical charismatic Protestantism. Um, another thing that's going on is, um, you know, rising life expectancy, uh, as people expect to live longer, um, their, their view of what they want changes, right? You don't need to have as many children because more of them are going to survive. Um, that mm. explains a lot of the fertility change simply right there. It's like, you just don't need to have as many because fewer of them are going to die. Huh. Um, and then secondly, um, uh, as you expect to live longer and spend more years married to the same person, the stakes are a lot higher for long-term compatibility. Like oh, point blank, point yeah. blank. If you're going to die pretty soon, like, will the sex be nice? Can they provide <laughs> you food? Check, check. Let's go. Okay. Um, but if you're going to be spending 30 years together, well, like the stakes are higher. Let's figure this out. Um, sure. You know, there's also in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there's a really long delay in marriage. People are getting married very late. Um, uh, you know, men in particular are using a lot of a lot of prostitutes um, as you know, kind of a, a sexual bridging thing between sexual maturity and marriage. Um, uh, you know, average number of sexual partners for men didn't like radically increase during the sexual revolution. Um, it probably increased some, but, but not as much as people think, particularly the boys who went over to Europe in world war one and two. Um, uh, there's a lot of American genetic material in Europe. Um, so, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ferments here with life expectancy, education, um, the emergence of new forms of Protestantism in particular, um, that are sort of highly emotive, individualistic, um, uh, and, um, uh, kind of recasting the human divine relationship in very, very kind of emotional terms. Um, 
Uh, and th these all converge together in various ways to change the calculation on marriage from, you know, who's a good person to kind of, you know, build the next step of the family dynasty with for as long as we last. Uh, and instead become, you know, who's a person to have as like a life partner that I'm very compatible with. So like, you know, your parenting, you know, this is a, we're talking about marriage and fertility. One cannot not cite Fiddler on the Roof. Okay. <laughs> um, sure. Uh, right. So like, you know, you have your different models of marriage there, right? Like the old couple, but do you love me? Right. Is like they got yeah. married because it was like what you do to continue the family and then love grew among them and good luck. They're compatible. You know, the couple across the street, maybe, maybe he's beating her, right? Maybe they're not compatible. So these, these quote unquote foundational marriages didn't always end well. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, companion marriage was all bad. They're just responding to very real, reasonable reasons to shift demand. Um, yeah, but, it's uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, it almost, you know, it feels like it. It feels like it's too good to be true, or it's kind of blaming the exact people I want to blame. Like, you know, a lot of the people in my audience will really want to stick it to the Protestants. Um, it's definitely the Protestants' fault. Um, but right. So, so there's this. Well, hey, look, look, look. I'm I'm about there. as prot as they come. Uh, I am I am Lutheran to my bones. I would be, you know, I'm I'm perfectly happy to renegotiate Westphalia on my own terms <laughs> at the slightest invitation. Um, but uh, but that said, I mean, like you know, th there's right, just right. no denying <laughs> the historic evidence here that like it was Protestants who made the first move shockingly, actually, they surprised everyone. Um, for some reason right now, I'm blanking on the uh, Lambeth. I think it was the seventh Lambeth conference in like the 1920s where like the Anglican communion just like out of the blue shocked everyone. It was like, meh, contraception's okay. And everybody was <laughs> like, what? It is? What? And it yeah, just like, and yeah. Yeah, and there seems to be a bit more of a communitarian attitude um I, I know you're at you're at mcgill right um yes so, so like a, a kind of interesting canadian natural experiment is quebec right quebec did um public child care um public daycare uh sorry it, and um you know they're, they're uh you know at least uh a more relatively more catholic population uh do, do you think that there's a real there's a causal relationship there right is the kind of look towards maybe more communitarian or more pronatalist, um, essentially family policy or say social welfare policy. Do you think there's a connection there? Is there a connection kind of cross countries there? Um, look, you know, when you get talking about the Pope, uh, in Quebec, um, uh, there are basically, uh, two views. Um, he's either the devil um, or he should probably be the premier of Quebec. Um, right. So like you <laughs> yeah, basically I, have both, like both archetypes, theocrats, right? Like you either have theocrats who like, um, yeah, they're kind of that old school Quebec Catholic extremist, or you have like, you know, the victors of the quiet revolution who, yeah, yeah, you know, like their, their whole right, identity yeah. as a Quebecois person is like, we threw off the yoke of Catholicism and darkness in 1967 
and we're never going back. Look, we are a modern people now with a distinct society. So I would not yeah. locate any pronatalism in Quebec as being the product of Catholicism. Okay. What I would say that's fair. is what is going on in Quebec is a deep, deep anxiety about their distinct society, which is not defined right. by Catholicism, but is designed by being Francophone, Canadian Francophone. Um, they don't want that to go away. They want that to stay. They are perfectly happy to engage in extraordinary legisl legislative interventions to ensure that Quebec remains French. Um, and so they are cautiously pronatal in the sense that like, you know, they, they do want French people to perpetuate themselves, Francophone people. Um, uh, yeah, they, so, they do have a lot of siege mindset. Like, do you want to just explain for the audience Bill 101? Like, like there were a bunch of basically like yeah. anti-Ukraine people on on, uh, on Twitter who who yeah. were talking about you know when the start of the invasion happened. Just as like one aside, sorry. Um, when the start of the invasion happened, there are people who are basically talking about you know Ukraine is discriminating against Russian language minorities. And so, um, yeah. yeah, so sorry, God. So so like yeah, so, law one hundred one. So I think yeah. it's worth noting Ukraine was discriminating against Russian language minorities. Um, yeah. And Quebec is discriminating against Anglophones in Quebec. And you know what? I'm very in favor of both things. Um, you know, polities have a right to ensure that the people in them speak the language. Um, right, right. I'm very pro-linguistic particularism. I lived in Hong Kong for a while. And like nothing makes me angrier than the fact that like Hong Kong schools, when they teach Chinese, have to teach Mandarin Chinese as like the formal written form. I'm like, you speak Cantonese. You should, you should be speaking like formal written Cantonese. Um, but anyways, um, I'm very in favor of language particulars. So Bill 101, um, or there was a precursor to it as well, is basically this law in Quebec that violates like every right in the Canadian constitution. But the Canadian constitution, the, the, the charter of rights, has a special term in it called the notwithstanding clause. It says that yeah, any yeah. provincial government can suspend basically any of your civil rights, not your political rights. They can't suspend elections, but they can suspend any of your civil rights for like up to five years at a time. And they can keep renewing that as long as it's popular to do so. Um, so like you have no rights in Canada, basically. Um, like they can suspend anything, your freedom of religion, assembly, speech, whatever. So Quebec basically says, you know, there's only going to be a limited number of slots at non-French schools. Um, you can only enroll in them if you can prove you're part of a historic non-French speaking population in Canada. If you're an immigrant or if you're, you know, you know, recently anglicized, um, tough breaks, you have to go, you have to do French school. Your kids have to do French school. So like if I were to stay and raise my kids in Quebec, they would have to go to French school. Um, uh, so it's, it's very strict. You know, there's limitations like businesses have to do French signage. So like Starbucks here is not called Starbucks. It's called Café Starbucks. Um, Staples <laughs> is not yeah. called Staples. It's called Bureau en Gros. Um, uh, you know, you have to change the name to make it French. You have to translate things. French lettering on signs must be bigger than English lettering. Government inspectors go to businesses to ensure that English is only being used when necessary. Um, all this stuff. They are enforcing a French society and they're doing it more and more all the time. Um, look, I don't have a problem with this. I think this is fine. Um, 
you know, my experience in Hong Kong made me extremely hostile to sort of language imperialism. Um, I really think, you know, linguistic minorities within an area should have a right to protect their distinctive culture. In the United States, I think it's insane that Hawaiian language education is not required for students in Hawaii. It should be. Um, You should have to learn Hawaiian if you live in Hawaii. I just think it's crazy that you're not. Um, uh, I think if you live in a county that has a large Native American population, you should be required to take at least one course in their language. Um, It's it's nuts to me that we don't make this a thing. Um, But I'm a weirdo on that. Um, uh, I'm the guy over here, like, you know, doing my Hindi Duolingo because my neighbors all speak Hindi. Um, but, um, so, um, like that's Quebec. The point is they're really, really concerned about protecting their distinct society. And as a result, yeah, there's some, there's some soft pronatalism. Um, but there's also some, you know, like, why do they support childcare? One is like their, their identity is very wrapped up in like secular modernism. They really want, you know, people to be like, for example, in Quebec, women are not allowed to take their husband's last name. Okay. So like when my wife goes huh. to the hospital, even though her passport and everything says stone is her last name, they will not acknowledge that her documents all have to be in her maiden name, even though she has no legal papers in that name. Um, that's, because that's strange, my huh? name is a sign of oppression. Right. Um, so like there's all this stuff that they really want to promote, promote secular French modernity. The result is they really want you to put your kids in childcare. Why? So that mommy can work. And what's going to happen at childcare? Your child will assimilate. They will learn French. They will socialize with other kids who kind of teach them the Quebec way. It's about turning you into a Quebecois person. Yeah, it um, is this very it is this very French thing, you know, like this, this kind of civic identity, right? Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's you know, there's a lot I don't, you know, it's not the civic identity I want for my child. I think it's like point blank. I think it's like not necessarily a great civic identity, but like you know what, it's their civic identity, and I love how much they love it. Like I wish everywhere loved who they are as much as the Quebecois do. Like just. Right. Good right. on you guys. Like way to have some enthusiasm for who you are. Yeah. So, so there's this question of, there, there's this question of the kind of siege mentality, right? I actually don't know. I actually don't know how birth rates are doing within Quebec. I, I, I know in Canada. They're higher than in the rest of Canada. Not a lot higher, huh. but they are higher. And I should say siege mentality is pretty pronatal. So yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I have kind of a side project. It's not published anywhere yet, but I've been working on, you know, there are these high fertility populations in modern societies. You can think about ultra-Orthodox Jews, you can think about the Amish, but not just the Amish, conservative Mennonites generally. Um, you can think about the Roma in Europe. You can think about Mormons until recently. You know, Mormons have less of a siege mentality than in the past, um, still some. Um, you can think about, you know, a lot of different groups around the world feel set upon. And what I find is that if you take uh, an ethno-religious group. They don't have to be religious. The Roma have religious diversity. They're an ethnic group. Um, but if you take a group and you geographically concentrate them and then you like hit them with some really adverse group experiences like a genocide um, or some other kind of serious group threat, 
in the wake of that experience, not always during it, obviously, but in the wake of it, the survivors tend to have really, really pronatal cultural norms. And they tend to promote those cultural norms really, really um, aggressively. Um, right. So there, there's a, great, a little bit for the audience, this is like Israel, right? That's Israel. But actually, there's a great that. paper demonstrating this with uh, ethnic groups in Indonesia. It's called uh, – hmm. what's it called? I think it's called Weapon of the Womb Strategic Fertility in Indonesia or something like that. Um, there, there's a there's a there's a author. His last name's his name's Bastien Sheb 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 Ferret or something. He's he's French. Um, he's done some work on some of these groups that I'm I'm very convinced by. Um, but you can extend it more broadly. Um, that basically group threat uh, can, in certain circumstances, ignite pronatalism. Uh, but it's only under certain circumstances. It has to truly be a group threat. Like you have to actually be targeted on the basis of your group, um, not just like, oh, we're killing all the educated people and your group has to, happens to be educated. So like, you know, mm. the Khmer Rouge isn't going to work for this. Um, uh, it has to actually be a group threat. Um, and also your group has to actually have some pre-existing uh, clustering dynamic. So like you need, if your group was really spread out to begin with, you're unlikely to form these emergent clustering norms. You have to already be clustered so that when you face pressure, you have an incentive to lean inwards. Right. So, um, yeah, we, we mentioned, or I mentioned Israel earlier. That, that's been a really fascinating outlier. Uh, I, I know that... Uh, actually, tell me that this. Uh, is it overrated or underrated, the, the, res- the responsibility of the ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel for the birth Oh, it's rate. so overrated. Okay, so here's the Israel story. Uh, Israel's more religious than most countries. And um, the ultra-Orthodox, the ultra or even just like the Orthodox or the, the conservative, they have a lot of babies. Okay, that does explain some of the difference. Secular Jews, so non-religious Jewish atheists, or I guess I should say like ethnically Jewish atheists, in Israel, on average, have two children. Secular oh, Jews great. in America, yeah. on average, have one child. <laughs> okay, so religion matters a lot for Israel. But if everyone in Israel was a secular Jew, they would have replacement rate fertility. Why? Two answers. One, policy. Israel has really, 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 really generous family policies. Okay. They actively support IVF for older women. They give huge like baby bonuses and child allowances. They've got a good childcare arrangement. They really promote family through state policy. Um, the other reason is uh, what we call alloparenting. If that means other parent, basically this is free childcare from uh, people who aren't the parents. Uh, Judaism tends to be a very familistic religion and create a very familistic culture connecting extended family. Um, and the result is Israeli parents, regardless of their religion, they just get a lot of help from other adults. Their parents do a lot of childcare, aunts and uncles, neighbors. There's just a stronger culture of watching other people's kids. Um, if you were to go to the, the Kung uh, hunter gatherer people in South Africa, um, who are kind of 
anthropologists like to use them as like the closest analog we have for what humans might have been kind of like deep in our evolutionary past. Um, you know, they're not a living fossil. They're not identical to what we were in the past, but they're kind of vaguely similar. Um, uh, what you'll notice is that the distinctive feature of how the Kung raised their kids uh, is that it's really close personal contact. Like the parents basically never put the children down. Like they're just carried all the time. But secondly, um, other people watch their kids a lot. Like aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, uh, just other people in the, the group do a lot of childcare, a ton of childcare. Alloparenting is the human uh, evolutionary norm. Um, we have more children than a lot of other primates. Uh, we're not the highest fertility primates, but we're definitely in the upper part of the distribution. Um, but we also do way more investment in our children than most primates. So if you know anything about like, you know, uh, evolutionary biology, we right, it's often... very K-selective. Well, so no, there's K and R, okay? Yeah. So like yeah. R means you have a lot of babies and some of them survive. K means you put a lot of investment in each. Humans do both. Okay. We actually have more babies than most other primates. We are R breeders, wow. but we also invest more in them. We're K selective. How do we do that? And the answer is humans do way more care of non-children than any other primate. Humans watch each other's babies. Non-parents invest in babies that are not their children at a way higher rate than other primates. Um, so we are able to breed more and invest more because we enlist non-parent labor into child rearing. And so, you know, in human societies, people who get more help from with child rearing from their parents, from their siblings, from other friends in their community, from neighbors, whatever, have more kids. Benefiting from alloparenting is one of the strongest predictors of having more kids. Communities where people contribute more alloparenting, so where people like do more childcare for others, have more kids. And actually, differences in alloparenting rates explain most of the differences in religious fertility. The a really? key reason that religious people have more babies is because religious people do more voluntary child care for each other. It doesn't explain the whole difference, but it explains a lot of it. Now, then you have to ask, well, why do they do more child care for each other? Well, because they have a different set of attitudes about the importance of children, the importance of community, yada, yada. So, like, you know, the, it's chicken or the egg, right? These things, yeah. it's, a, it's a, but, but the point is purely compositionally alloparenting is a huge part of explaining fertility around the world in Israel among religious communities differently dip, uh, among religious communities generally um and even among sort of you know high investment primates alloparenting explains a lot of the fertility differentials we observe right so yeah i i'm it, it is very interesting. I, I really respect the kind of just collection of data that you have. I'm just trying to put it all into basically one one approach that we can There's we can not look one at. approach. So this okay. is the problem. People have absorbed this. this. Sorry, what's the swearing policy on the podcast? Uh, go ahead. Okay. Ha have at so, it. This bullshit theory called the demographic transition. Okay, and here's the theory. The theory goes like this. 
for a long, long time, forever and ever, humanity basically had high fertility and high mortality and approximately stable or low growth population. And demographic prehistory is boring because it was just lots and lots of babies and lots and lots of death. Then modernity happened. Fertility fell, mortal or mortality fell first. That led people to not need to have as many babies. So fertility fell. Then we reached the modern period of low fertility, low mortality, and we thought it'd be stable, but maybe it's not stable. So maybe now we have a second demographic transition of super low fertility. Okay, this is all bullshit. Um, historic demography is cram-packed with episodes of low fertility, of variable mortality, episodes of explosive growth for hundreds of years by certain population groups, uh, centuries-long periods of low growth due to low fertility of certain population gro uh, groups. We see entire lineages of the human tree vanish without evidence of catastrophic mortality. They just had persistently low fertility and they were weeded out um, through low fertility. Um, every new piece of data that we have from demographic prehistory suggests highly variable pre-modern demography. A great example is Mongolia. Um, pre-modern Mongolia had surprisingly low fertility. Um, about four children per woman, which once you account for child mortality is about replacement rate fertility. Now four might seem really high. Um, but again, like, you know, before, you know, with, with, with mortality, that's, that's about two surviving children. Now, um, and also the, 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 the amazing thing about this is, um, if, if people just have sex freely over the course of their life, and they never use contraception, they're going to have anywhere from seven to 15 kids. Okay. Like that's natural fertility, quote unquote. Um, so why were Mongolian people only having four kids? And the answer is Mongolia didn't have a taboo against non-marital sex. You could have sex outside of marriage. And you might say, shouldn't that have made more children? The answer is no. Chlamydia. Okay. Chlamydia <laughs> renders you infertile. Uh, if you have it severely enough, huge shares of Mongolian people had chlamydia in the pre-modern period. Um, their fertility was very low. Uh, boom. When the Soviets come in and introduce antibiotics, Mongolian fertility rockets upwards. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so like, you know, pre-modern demography is weird. I mentioned the Tokugawa shogunate as like another weird example. Sri Lanka is another example we have really good evidence on. You can go back to like Caesar, you know, Augustus in the first century is really freaked out because all the Romans are not having babies. Okay, and so he's like trying to encourage Roman elites to have babies. Um, you know, uh, Rodney Stark has this nice book on the growth of Christianity in the first few centuries. And one of the curiosities about Christianity early on is that we know there were there were not very many mass conversions. Like we don't have a lot of historic records of like huge groups of people converting all at once. And yet the, the religion expanded really rapidly. How? And the answer is, Christians had more babies than pagans. And the reason they had more babies is one, they didn't kill their children. They were anti-infanticidal. And two, when the pagans would be like, oh, I don't want this baby. It's a girl. I'm going to like leave it on the hillside to die of starve, to die of exposure. The Christians would be like, I'm going to go rescue that baby and raise it. And so Christians grew through differential fertility, through rescuing of orphans, uh, and then also through conversion, particularly of upper-class women, slaves, and a small number of elite men. Um, uh, so, you know, Christianity grew through essentially a, a, a demographic advantage. 
Um, and then also Christians were highly effective at, at establishing basically street mobs who could win political contests of, of basically smashing each, smashing each other's temples and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, so um, the, the point of all of this, the point I'm making is like demographic prehistory is weird. Um, there have been all kinds of volatility and reproductive strategies over the course of human history. There's this nice paper looking at like differential mutation rates in ancient genomes that shows that like the age at which people had their first child uh, has varied a lot through human history um, over the last, you know, 100,000 generations or whatever. Um, there's been huge variation in age at first birth. Um where am I going with this? I have no idea. I don't remember what you said that got me on this. But my point is, one of the things we need to unlearn as um, as we think about fertility is this idea that the story of fertility is, it used to be, you know, this high pre-modern fertility. Then we got modernity and contraception. Now it's low. End of story. No, there's, there've been many periods of low fertility in the past. Um, uh, and then fertility rose. Uh, so to me, as somebody who's a pronatalist, uh, that is, that is advice against defeatism. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Rome, Rome there. I have, I have a few highly online friends who, uh, who, who I asked for questions before this interview. And I have written here, um, Eus Trium uh, Liberorum. Uh, th- does that does that ring a bell to you? Oh, my Latin's not great. Okay, so so this was apparently this was apparently the um, uh, I think like the program of changing sexual norms and essentially encouraging people to have children in oh uh, yeah Augustus in the late Roman thing. Empire yeah. Uh, late Roman Empire, or or it might not have been uh, may, may not have been late. <coughs> um, I let me just double check this. Um, yeah, I would not trust my um my timeline on this. I just wrote something down quickly. Yeah, under under Augustus. You never mind. Stream, never oh, the mind. right of three. Ch- yeah, 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 yeah. This is Augustus's thing. Um, yeah, my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm mentioning. Um, uh. Uh, so, so basically, I, I guess the, the root of this question is uh, how much, if if anything, can we draw from uh, the Roman? Uh, many many people like comparing like comparing our current state to uh, the late Roman Republic or to the Roman Empire. Uh, how much? How many parallels can we draw from there? Um, I think a lot. Um, you know, why did Augustus do this? It's because um, he uh, um, he was worried. Uh, that Romans weren't having enough, elite Romans in particular, uh, were not having enough children to uh, fill out the elite roles in the empire. And what was why was that a problem? Well, because if there weren't enough, then those roles would have to be filled be filled by non-Latins, right? So what ended up happening? Well, the roles were filled by non-Latins. You get things like the Illyrian dynasty, um, uh, uh, you know, or, or other essentially, you know, Romanized barbarians over time. Um, but actually, the Romanized barbarians do a very good job of running the empire for centuries. Um, it's really not until the Goths that things fall off, the, that the, the wheels fall off the wagon. 
Um, and the reason they fall off is basically because um, all the various immigrant groups into the empire and barbarian groups that have been assimilated, uh, finally, for, for a variety of, of reasons, look at the Goths and they go, eh, we're not going to let you come in. You know, we're not going to assimilate you. Um, and so the, the Roman policy choice to basically not integrate the Goths. Um, the Goths are not the first barbarian group to cross Roman borders. Um, uh, you know, the, the Romans have been integrating German groups for centuries by this, by this point. Um, but for whatever reason, at this time, the sort of the nativist impulse of the Roman elites takes over. They don't integrate them. It's a catastrophe. Um, hmm. uh, so I would say, you know, successful immigrant immigrant integration is really, really important. Um, that means, you know, Quebec probably has the right idea. Um, you know, you need to get immigrants assimilating to your local culture. You don't want to say no to them because if you say no to them, they might, you know, form a horde, cross your border, conquer your country and burn your capital. Um, what you want to do is integrate them. You want good integration. Um, uh, and also, I think the other lesson is that uh, while you can uh, substitute native fertility with immigrants for a while, um, uh, every time you try it, you're rolling the dice. You know, Maybe you'll succeed for this group. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll succeed for this group. Maybe you won't. And eventually you will roll a pair of ones. Um, because that's how probability works. Um, and so yeah, it... you you probably, while you want to be welcoming to immigrants and integrating them, you probably also want your native fertility to be non-catastrophically low, just as an insurance policy, if nothing else. Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting things that I've seen so far, Tyler Cowen, I'm not sure if you know Tyler Cowen, the economist, uh, he made this argument in a Bloomberg column that essentially in a world where global fertility rate is declining, you'll get actually a lot more competition for immigrants, right? I think yes. I heard you make a similar argument on a on a podcast that essentially, yeah, that, that the more... Yeah, it's a know, dead-end strategy. Demand, I mean, the more you it, need it, the immigrants. Well, it only works for first movers, right? So like rich right. countries today can pull this off. But like fertility in India is below replacement rate right now. Like really? okay. who are the immigrants who are going to move to India? Yeah, like, yeah. How, where are they going to find enough of them to plug that gap in 30 years, 40 years? Um, so like this, this, like this strategy works fine if you're like the first mover, the, the rich countries right now. But like this is not a long term strategy for humanity. And I would argue and here I'm going to get up on my like anti-colonial high horse, you know, OK, like fertility is not falling in poor countries. So fertility is falling in poor countries today way faster than it fell in the European countries. Okay. Like at any given level of income, fertility in poor countries today is way lower than it was when European countries were at the same level of income, which is to say they are going to get old at a way lower income than European countries were at when they got old which is to say they're going to be taking care of huge retiree populations with way fewer social resources. Now, why is this happening? It's happening because Western countries through media, through nonprofit organizations, through government to government relations, through coercion. I mean, many cases we said, look, you know, 
colonial governments basically forced birth control on a lot of these countries. Right, right. This um, was like the old school you know, eugenicists, right? Yeah, eugenicists. But also you get um, – there's a theory called developmental idealism that I, I really think is, is a very compelling argument for glo- explaining global fertility change um, that through explicit colonial co- coercion, through neocolonialism, through – um, you know, kind of the NGO industrial complex through all these things, we have foisted small family norms on countries around the world. And we've kind of sold them a bill of goods and said like, look, if you reduce your family size, it's going to cause rapid industrialization. This is bullshit. Like this isn't true. Countries that like more aggressively reduce their family size, like didn't actually have faster industrialization. Um, like th- this wasn't true. This was a lie. Um, but we promoted this idea. Um, we also like, you know, if you reduce your family size, it'll, it'll do more like good stuff for climate change. Again, this isn't true. Countries that had stricter family policies like 40 years ago did not have slower growth in carbon emissions. In fact, they have faster growth in carbon emissions. Like this was all bullshit. Um, but we promoted this really aggressively. We told countries like, look, you know, we'll only give you like development aid to cure malaria if you do like a family planning program. And if they didn't consent, you know, like the CIA will knock off your president, right? Like it wasn't like small family norms just like spread through purely voluntaristic, happy, nice ways. Western countries very explicitly, sometimes coercively, sometimes violently promoted this stuff. I mean, USAID, there's a former president of Peru who's been indicted under international uh, international human rights law because he did this program to fight the Shining Path terrorist organization. They went around and they sterilized Quechua women in, in, um, in Peru because they thought, look, you know, a lot of these terrorists are Quechua, so we just need to get rid of Quechua people, let's sterilize all the women. That program was paid for by USAID in the 1990s. Okay. Like, oh my. Like, this isn't ancient history. Like, this is like today. Um, India didn't totally roll back its forced sterilization. Well, there's arguments on if India still has rolled back its forced sterilization program, but arguably they stopped it in 2012. Um, so, um, this is very recent. It's very bad. It's been very violent. Um, and now these countries have really low fertility compared to their income levels. And so I would argue that since we broke it in terms of, you know, the normal process of fertility falling in response to rising income and changing norms and the emergence of companion marriage and blah, 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 blah. Like we broke it, we buy it. We, the Western rich countries, we have to find a solution. We have to, it is incumbent on us to spend the trillions of dollars necessary to find a way to make pronatalism work because we have to find something that works in time for the poor countries that are not going to have immigrants to solve it for them. So I believe that we have an ethical duty. Even if you don't think pronatalism is like super essential for us because we can do immigrants. True. We have an ethical duty to find something that works in time to roll it out for the countries that are not going to have the same options as we have because we messed them up. We did this to them. We made them old before they got rich. Also, we like looted their natural resources for centuries, but whatever. Yeah. So so this is always, this is always just a fascination to me because there's, 
Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but because there is this pattern, I think there there is this pattern of essentially, you know, essentially doomerism, right? And you seem to you seem to push against. I, I think like most of the people who post about you know the the TFR that they're mostly doomers. They're mostly saying you know collapse is inevitable. Um, you know, it's some degree maybe not collapse, but contraction. Contraction maybe that's true, right? Economic contraction um reorienting of benefit systems so on um right so, so this maybe is a good time to shift from the kind of scientific purely scientific to uh the more political so yeah you mentioned we have to find a solution uh first of all what is that solution going to look like in in your best guess uh and second of all what are, what is the kind of political coalition to get there so in terms of policy responses um, what everybody wants to hear is that some country somewhere did a policy and it's a policy that's fairly technocratic, right? Some kind of funding program or tax program or benefit program. Um, and it caused birth rates to go way higher. Man, you're really um, calling out my audience there, but yes, uh, many such yeah, cases. this is, first of all, sorry, hasn't happened. But second of all, this is a stupid expectation. Like fertility is a really complicated process that touches on virtually everything in life. Okay. Um, like if your expectation is you're going to come in and you're going to find like, Oh, here's the technical fix. Like then you're just not engaging in the question. Seriously. You need to leave. Like you're not an adult. You can't be in the room where we talk about this. Um, because it touches everything in life. There is nothing in life that is not affected by your family status. So if you want to get people to change their family status on average, like all of society is going to be changed in some way. Now that doesn't mean there aren't some points of relatively higher leverage, but there's not going to be a silver bullet. And beyond the cliche of there's not a silver bullet, like, you know, you're going to change one leverage point. Okay. And then you'll get a little bit of juice and then that's going to wear out because the benefit you got from that is going to run into the next choke point. So then you need to fix that. Right. And you don't always know what the next choke point is until you get there. Okay. So pronatalism is not a question of doing one thing one time. Okay. It's a question of building a political coalition that will be able to do five, 10, 15 different major policy reforms over the next 30 years. Okay. So that is what pronatalism involves. And that is why it is very hard. Okay, because it's not a question of getting one policy in place. It's a question of building a coalition that will be able to do this repeatedly. Now, you might think, well, how do you build such a coalition? Well, over the last 40 years, conservatives in America have successfully built a coalition that has repeatedly hammered every single choke point on the abortion question. Okay, like legislatively, judicially, at every level of government, conservatives have hit this issue. They have built a coalition that even when they were in the minority found a way to move the ball forward. What you need is a similar coalition from pronatalism generally. Okay. Now, to some extent, it's actually the same coalition. Okay. Most people who are anti-abortion, though not all, are also reasonably pronatal and support a lot of pronatal policies. Um, uh, not all, it's not a perfect overlap, but my point is when you think about pronatalism, the main effort is saying, how do we put together a coalition 
that whether they're in the minority or the majority at every level of government are going to passionately, determinatively, and in a technically competent way, just run roughshod over every policy barrier. How do you do that? Um, it's not easy. Um, but and it involves multiple elements of society. So let's talk about a country that at least has had a success on a 15-year time scale. Um, and that would be Georgia. Country, not state. My personal view is that the state needs to rename itself um, because they are squatting on the name of objectively one of the coolest countries in the world. Okay, so Georgia. Small post-Soviet Republic, Caucasus. Um, uh, overwhelmingly, they believe uh, 90% of the population is a member of the Georgian Orthodox Church. The leader of the Georgian Orthodox Church, Ilya II, came into power in the 1970s. He's still the leader today. He's like approximately 2 billion years old now. Um, <laughs> if you know anything about Soviet family policy, they really promote countries. They really promote abortion. Um, uh, in the 1990s, Soviet family policy fell apart. They promoted abortion, but they also really promoted uh, big families. And the way they promoted big families was they had a special tax on single people. Single people paid a higher tax rate. If you got married, you got a tax break. Um, the result was Soviet countries tended to have a relatively high fertility. Um, after the fall of communism, that regime fell apart. Um, the welfare system fell apart. Fertility crashes, social chaos. There's a civil war, bad stuff. Fertility in Georgia in the early 2000s is about 1.5, 1.6. Patriarch Ilya II looks around and he goes, this is not good. The vast majority of my people in my church are in this country. Um, it's fertility rate has a big impact on my church. Also, abortion's bad. There's way too much of it. We need more Georgian Orthodox people. and We need less abortion. How do we do it? Wait, so sorry. Qu very quick clarification. So so Patriarch Ilya, is he, so he's kind of like the equivalent of the Pope? Does he have equivalent any of political the power? Yes. Uh, under the Constitution of the Republic of Georgia... Um, the, the church is like a state church, uh, and they have a special role, but he doesn't have like a legislative function. Okay. Uh, okay. So, so he's kind of like, you know, like, like, um, the, you know, the Anglican church is the state church of the UK. Um, now, yeah. but the difference is public opinion polls in Georgia show that patriarch Ilya is reliably the most popular man in the country. He was a big part of, like, he was kind of like one of the leaders when they broke away from the Soviets. He was one of the people leading, like, the nationalist restoration. Um, he's enormously popular. He's sort of a hero of the end of the Soviet period, um, a hero of the nationalist sort of renaissance, hero of the renewal of Georgian literature, arts, all this stuff. I, I mean, I could go on and on. The Georgian church has a unique place in the hearts of the Georgian people. Um, it is a unique institution. Honestly, the closest analog would be something like Israel. Um, whatever the case, in 2000, in late 2007, Christmas 2007, Ilya decides something must be done. So he makes an announcement. He will personally baptize and become godfather to any third or higher born child of married Georgian Orthodox parents. Now, as, an, as someone trained as an economist, I am immediately salivating because that's like kind of a randomized control trial. Okay. 
Mm. We've got a country with a treatment, a special high prestige baptism, uh, but only if you're a third or higher child, only if you're a married parent, only if you're a Georgian Orthodox parent. So did fertility rates rise for married Georgian Orthodox parents who already had two children? I have a study that's under review right now in a, at a good journal um, where we show empirically that yes, birth rates rose for married Georgian Orthodox parents. We use this a couple of different methods um, in microdata and in like a synthetic control of comparable countries, yada, yada. Upshot is you can see this in the monthly birth data within 18 months, uh, the fertility rate of the country rose from 1.5 or 1.6 to 2.2 or 2.3. Um, that was driven almost entirely by higher parity children. It was driven entirely by births to married parents. Um, it began precisely nine months after the announcement. By the way, if you know anything about Georgian history, nine months after the announcement of this policy was one month after their disastrous war with Russia. Oh. Wars with Russia huh. do not lead to higher fertility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like right. their fertility should have fallen. Mm. It rose. Um, uh, at this point, and then their fertility has remained unusually high for 15 years now. Now, as of COVID, it is a bit below two. Um, but if you know anything about Soviet, post-Soviet fertility, having your fertility a bit below two is really, really good. Yeah, you just look at Romania. You yeah, look yeah, at, yeah. You like know, this is this is this is great. Yeah. So like now, uh, that was in two thousand seven eight that this happened. In twenty thirteen, the government rolled out some pronatal financial incentives, which, um, uh, you know, covering fire, um, and there was a second bump in fertility around twenty thirteen fourteen, um, uh, and and the government has done some more things along the way. Uh, so at this point, we can say in Georgia, we see there was a huge increase. Uh, and then a few years later, the government did another round of support. And there's been a durable increase for 15 years. Now, it is fading out over time um, because there's some new choke point. Uh, my authors and I show that this increase did not come because women increased their fertility preferences. Fertility preferences in terms of desired family size were the same before and after the intervention. Um, uh, we show that uh, abortions did decline, but unintended pregnancies did not rise. So what happened? Well, the average pregnancy was just more likely to be subjectively viewed as intended. So what happened? Oh, I see. Um, what happened is when you change the status that accrues to parenting, people change how they view their children. Status is hugely important. Right. Humans are status machines. We pursue status. So if the status that accrues to fertility rises, fertility itself rises. So how do you change the status that accrues to fertility? Well, in Georgia, you do it by having an enormously popular symbol of national restoration personally associate himself with higher parity fertility. Okay. That's not replicable everywhere. Yeah. In Israel, you do it um, because you have this general familistic culture that really promotes childbearing. Your friends and your family will help you take care of your kids. You're contributing to this idea of national renewal, you know, 
okay, it's a status thing, but it's a different kind of status. Um, among Mormons, how do you do it? Well, you know, Mormon religion uh, promotes childbearing. Having a big family is definitely a form of status. Uh, when you get together on Sundays, you know, it's very visible what your family is. You're all sitting together, et cetera, et cetera. That's a kind of status that accrues to you. Um, uh, if you go around high fertility groups, you find that they're all places that have created alternative status hierarchies. Now, there's a really nice paper that just came out, I think like a month ago, that they use a randomized controlled trial of status priming, priming people to think more about like status competition. And they show that when they do that, people have lower fertility preferences. Hmm. Um, so the question is, how do you get people to either think about status less or to feel that they accrue status by having kids? So how do you get people to think about status less Research suggests um, when people perceive their surroundings to be very crowded with people, it makes them think about status competition more. And when inequality is higher, they think about status more. So you want a society that's relatively equal and where people don't feel crowded. Right. So, 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 so just like the opposite of San Francisco. The opposite of San Francisco. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, when you think about the built environment, you know, I'm very pro Yimby, like I want to build more stuff, yeah. but also a lot of Yimbys want to build stuff that could create perception of sort of crowding. Hmm, so yeah. you probably want to be building stuff, but you might not want to just be building giant high rises, right? You know, you want to liberalize building of mid density stuff, right? Things that, you know, you definitely want a lot of trees, right? Because trees alter people's perceptions of crowding. You know, you probably want your roads to be built with a little bit of curvature because curvature tends to reduce people's sight lines of traffic and people and all this makes them feel less crowded. Um, anything that makes you see large crowds of people all at once is going to be bad for babies. This is mm, right. difficult this is, for, so for like kind of urbanists because they tend to be like, oh, it's great to have all these spaces, with lots of people together. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like make people feel like the world around them is a little bit empty. And then secondly, inequality, perceptions of inequality are super important. Um, you know, how do you deal with that? It's really hard. Media narratives are part of that, but also, I mean, visible inequality, you know, conspicuous consumption is amplified via social media. You can think about algorithmic suppression of perceived inequality. Maybe you should like, you know, algorithmically suppress photos that are tagged more than a certain distance away from your home. Mm. Um, right. Like travel photos should maybe be algorithmically suppressed. Um, uh, or maybe like, you know, if a photo is geolocated within a high end retailer, it should be algorithmically suppressed. Um, you know, if like, you know, I think these are things are think worth thinking about, you know, because the, the other thing is that viewing other people's conspicuous consumption also tends to make people sad. Right? Like, it's not just as bad for babies. Like, it's bad. Um, so I think these are these are things to think about. Um, but then also you can think about, okay, so how do you change the culture to accrue status for having children? Um, and I think that that's, that's, a, that's a whole different, you know. My answer would be, um, uh, well, you know, your viewers may or may not know that I wear many hats. Um, I'm a corporate consultant. I help companies uh, that sell things for moms and babies. Um, I'm an academic. I research fertility. I'm a policy 
wonk person. I do kind of advocacy work. Um, my wife and I are also missionaries with a mission organization. We proselytize and promote Christianity, particularly Lutheranism. I believe one way to promote a more pronatal culture would be for um, people to uh, experience the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, converting them to uh, the true faith, uh, and in that process to feel a connection to transcendent community, uh, which gives them a stake in the world after their death um, and a belief that they will meet their descendants and so to increase the value that they they place on having children. So I think if everyone would simply um, uh, come to Jesus, that that would also be a wonderful pronatal change. Right, right. So we want to see, uh, has there been, you know, you mentioned the, the shifting patterns of fertility. Um, has that been related to religious revivals in the States or elsewhere? Yeah, so fertility of religious Americans, that's like regular church attendees, has right, not right. really declined very much over the last 20 years. Um, mm. Virtually all the decline is among non-religious people and in the shift from religious to non-religious. Right. Though I think you mentioned that Mormon fertility actually dropped a lot, right? Do so, any... yeah, so this is, I've gone back and forth on this. Um, some of the data seems to say that Mormon fertility is dropping. Some of it seems to say maybe it's not. Um, it's still way higher than other groups. Um, and then you get the problem that Mormon fertility might be dropping because the average religious devotion of Mormon people may be changing. Suffice to right. say, if you use data on frequency of attendance, which is our best measure for like connection to religious community, though for those groups, there's not been, there's not been very much change. Yes. So I think like a very interesting question here is something like, um, something like no bless oblige, right? You know, you, you have, um, many kind of, uh, theorists of status, uh, Rob Henderson has been on the show a few times. He talks about luxury beliefs, right? He talks about essentially, um, the elite classes being primary in the formation of these kind of status hierarchies. Um, so fundamentally what we're talking about when we're talking about changing the status of of having children is changing the status of essentially elites, right? Or changing the elite perceptions of having yeah, children. Yeah, so like an example here, let, let, let's talk about Korea where we started. Like let's say that you're, you're the Korean government and you're worried about low fertility. Fact check, they are worried about low, low fertility. And let's say that you want to do something about it. They do want to do something about it. What should you do? One of the things that I've suggested, well, <laughs> yes. Uh, one of the things yeah. that I've suggested jokingly, but also kind of seriously is make a law saying that in Korea, uh, you cannot hold a public performance of music um, that charges money for entrance and your music cannot be played on any public carrier, like, you know, radio or something, uh, unless you uh, are a parent. Hmm. Um, uh, there you go. Only parents can perform. Suddenly recording companies will not be able to sell their music in Korea unless they're a parent. Now, foreign artists would also be hit by that. So what? Um, now, would this be a crazy totalitarian thing to do? Yes, it would. Could you do it politically? Probably not. Would it work? You know, the political dynamics might be such that you immediately get a new electoral coalition opposed to it and they vote it down. So it doesn't work. But if you got it to stick for 20 years, would it work? 
I I think probably yes. Um, uh, right. I just want to see one country. I want to see like a non-China country, you know, a non-fake country. Sure. Yeah. Um, try, yeah. try this. Yeah. Like, no. You know, it might but, be net. So you know, there's that. Um, uh, but I mean, you know, there are a lot of ways to think about status. But the point is, in each country, status is different. In a country like the U.S., I think it's actually really not helpful to think about it in national terms. You know, you don't need a national pronatal culture in the U.S., right? Like, we don't have a national culture in that sense. Um, You know, there are subcultures. What you need is for each subculture to find its own way towards pronatalism. You know, the reason that my subculture values children and sees them as high status might be different than some other subculture, right? Like, um, um, who are the, uh, the, the pronatalist couple, uh, Simone and Malcolm Collins. There you go. Okay. Like, yeah, they've been on the show. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So like values and attitudes wise, like we have like nothing in common. Okay. Like secular Calvinism to me is like two of the worst words in the world and you've put them together. <laughs> like I cannot imagine something that's like more distasteful to me as like an ideology. I'm putting that in the intro and then um, I'm sending them the episode. But I know, I'm I've, sorry, I've said this on. to them. Like I've said like, like no, that, that's look, great. What lovely people, like nothing against them personally, but like secular Calvinists, like there's no, there are very few words in the world that are just like more ick to me to begin with put them together and i'm just like um but they've you know they're doing their own thing for a very different community coming up with their own way in which you know pronatalism is is you know kind of has renewed status okay um that's not going to work in my community you know um their arguments are not going to be very compelling uh some of the arguments i've made here would be not at all compelling to, to people in my actual kind of real world community. Um, but that's fine. I'm engaging in public reason. I'm making arguments that, that I think are maybe compelling for your audience. Um, but, uh, um, but the point is subcultures need to find their own paths toward pronatalism. The U S is too big and too diverse to have the expectation that we are going to have like a culture of pronatalism. What we're going to have are cultures of pronatalism. Right. Yeah. I, I think like just looking at the size of the U.S. doing a kind of, you know, like like Georgia style, the, the, the Georgia style kind of mass social change, that that's something that's only possible because it's a smaller country. Right. Yeah, I, I think I agree. So, so like, OK, so so we can do, you know, there, there's a hypothetical version of this where, say, um I, I forget the title, but the leader of the Mormon church just goes and says, you know, it does a very similar thing to the leader of, to uh, patriarchalia, right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of one hypothetical example where this happens. Well, they already do it, right? And Mormon fertility is, is similar yeah, yeah, to, that's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. is similar to like what Georgian fertility was at its peak. So like they do it and it works. Um, there's also some good random, there's some good evidence using like kind of quasi experimental methods. There's two papers, one looking at papal speeches in Brazil and another looking at papal speeches in Italy. And they show that in speeches where popes talked more about family and fertility, 
um, births rose more in those Catholic communities afterwards. Um, so like, yeah, speech by leaders matters. Right. So, so there's the kind of meta question, right? We, we want these kind of status changes. We've, I, I think we both agree that they, they've sort of gone the other way in the past sort of 50 years, right? Like, like what is the kind of sociological explanation for why we've had all of these basically like antenatal thought patterns gain so much status? Um, and like, so, if you don't have a solid yeah, no, answer, no, no, no. So, fine. so my theory of demographic history is antinatalism has always, always been adaptive for the individual, right? Reproduction is very costly. It's always been adaptive for the individual, but it is maladaptive for groups, right? So it's likely that throughout history, individuals have figured this out and adopted antinatal norms. And sometimes whole groups have adopted antinatal norms. But in the past, subsistence pressures were so strong that in most cases, antinatal norms couldn't persist for a very long time. They might persist a few generations, a few centuries even, but in the very long run, they just couldn't win out because uh, because uh, um, there's just really you strong just subsistence. Selection. What's that? You just get group selection. It's not group selection per se. It's just that like, you know, an individual increases their survival by not breeding, but then they don't breed. Right, they don't pass it on. So it's individual yeah, selection. Yeah. This, this goes back. I, I'm kind of confused at what you meant by maladaptive there, because it seems like you know almost by definition you're 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 lowering inclusive fitness if you're if you're not having. Yes and no. So you can have a situation where for at least a few generations, if you have a lower fertility norm, but you can you know achieve higher survival of offspring, you know you could you know you could have an advantage for a while, but if you don't have the technology to like dramatically increase survival of offspring. Sure, but that's not remotely what's happening in the present, right? No, right. So so this is my theory on the past, okay? Okay. Is that these sure. norms have emerged a lot. Now, the reason I think they've emerged a lot is because most old religions have really, really, really explicit, overt, heavy-handed pronatal norms. Why? I would argue if you see what looks like one side of an argument in the historic record, you should assume that the other side existed. Okay. That is those right. norms emerged because they were arguing with someone, but that someone didn't exist today. Okay. Almost every very old religion is very pronatal. Um, okay. So um, uh, that's my theory of history. So what has happened today? Well, what happened today in the modern period is Yet again, antinatal norms cropped up, um, as they have many times in the past. Um, but the way antinatal norms propagate is if they are paired with much higher survival of the smaller number of children. Suddenly, in the you know 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st centuries, survival rates of children have rocketed upwards. Okay, child mortality collapsed, which suddenly meant there really isn't a fitness cost. 
Now, it's important to understand what I mean by fitness cost here. Do antenatal groups shrink as a share of the total human gene pool? Yes. But do they shrink in absolute numbers? Up to today, no. Right? Like, hmm. like the absolute numbers of like educated white Europeans have not shrunk yet. They really? will in the future. Um, but we're not yet at that shrinkage point. Um, because like low fertility is not like we're, we just haven't gotten there yet. Like we're, we're, I guess actually we might be getting there now, now that I think about it, but like we are just now hitting that point where there's finally, so to speak, an absolute fitness cost, relative fitness cost. Yes. But again, we're in a society where the subsistence pressures are so low, as you can see from our rapid population growth globally, that like relative fitness costs are just not an important constraint right now. Absolute fitness costs, because we improve child survival so much, there just there also wasn't an absolute fitness cost for antenatal norms. That is changing now because antenatal norms have become so antenatal, right? We reduced the fitness cost by decreasing child death so much that antenatal norms could feed on themselves and sort of propagate to an extreme that now you have these norms, you know, one child families where inevitably, no matter the child survival rate, you know, that community is going to struggle. The problem is as long as more pronatal norms exist in other societies, you can also get antenatal norms perpetuating through conversion. Right? right? Children born in high fertility societies can be converted into low child norms. So you will only really get strong selection against these antenatal norms once the pool of potential converts has shrunk to a degree that potential converts cannot offset um, losses in that antenatal norm group. So when do we reach that point? Well, that is an extremely contentious question. You've got like Kaufman, his shallow righteous inheritor. He thinks we're going to hit that point quite soon. Um, and so like, you know, the religious will begin to outcompete the secular. And so the future will be more religious. Then there's other sort of, you know, long run quantitative demography papers that suggest that actually, you know, conversion rates are so high that, um, that, you know, we could, we could perpetuate antenatal norms for you know, centuries to come. There's a lot of debate about this in the very, very, very long run. You know, one imagines that uh, the, the odds of cataclysmic events and or breakthrough technology changes um, are probably a bigger determining factor than like, you know, cultural and genetic selection. Um, but, you know, well, I, I don't think that's trivial. I, it, I don't think that's obvious. You know, it, it, it depends. You know, if you get like, you know, babies in a vat and robot nannies maybe i don't know um but uh um but whatever the case um you know in the very very long run inevitably yeah higher fertility norms have to win out um though they they might not win out forever right they went out for a while and then lower fertility norms will emerge again um but this is my point is that demographic history is not the story of permanent high fertility and the demographic future is not the story of permanent low fertility the history and the future will be a period will will be a story of episodic high and episodic low fertility. 
Right. So, yeah. So, so to jump back a little bit, um, I've actually had uh, Simone and Malcolm, I, I think it was Malcolm, make, make almost exactly the same case, right? Right. He basically said that, like, left le- left politics is like, is, is like a sterilizing meme, right? That, that it just goes around, you know, it's very, it, it's very much uh, selected for kind of um, conversion, let's say, and, you know, it just goes around converting people and sterilizes all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a little bit of a caricature of his point, but mm-hmm. like maybe a caricature that he would appreciate. Um, and, and the implication here, the implication here is just that, you know, we, we kind of need strict, strict cultural controls, right? Uh, is that something that you would support? Um, no. So, I mean, he's, he's incorrect. So it is true that liberals have much lower fertility than conservatives. But that's only true if you don't control for religion. Religious conservatives have similar fertility as religious liberals. And Hmm. non-religious conservatives have fairly similar fertility as non-religious liberals, right? The reason they're different is because there's differences in the religiosity associated with these things, okay? So, you know, you know, if, if I could, sure, yeah. sure, we can we can remove so, it one level, no, right? But, but, Let's but, say no, should, but, there but be cons- should there be important. cultural controls on on like seculars? But well, I, I just want to get into this because you know, you know, it's it's not a fun conversation if you're not sniping at your at your at your political allies, right? So like you know, the Collins is also sure. pronatal, support a lot of pronatal stuff, great, love it, wonderful. But like, I would argue that this is actually one of the significant sort of problematic differences in our strategies, right? Is that like they believe that the problem is the woke politics. I believe the problem is the godlessness. Um, I'm right. Uh, (laughs) That like the idea that we're going to get a durable secular pronatalism, maybe we will, but like so far the evidence is not there. Um, So like conservative secularists aren't like out there having like giant families on average. Um, Elon Musk, notwithstanding. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Uh, but then, you know, do we need strict cultural controls? I mean, you know, that's a very ambiguous statement. Um, uh, you know, in Bahrain, which is a, you know, a very conservative country, Bahraini citizens have about two children on average, um, and that's falling. You know, how long is it until conservative Bahrainis have 1.5 children? And they're a very conservative society. Um, at the end of the day, what's happening in Bahrain is that um, you don't eat, no matter how strict you make the society, Bahrainis have realized that you acquire status by getting better designer shoes, better jewelry, um, more luxurious vacations and a nicer house, not by having a lot of children. Um, right. Global liberalism remains undefeated. Well, it's not liberalism. I mean, you know, they're still veiled. They're still like, they're conservative, but you can have antinatal conservatism if it's a conservatism as a status hierarchy that is anti-familist. Right. So, so like, I don't know, some, someone, you know, someone like very right wing would say that like these um, status preferences are maybe not, um, they, they exist for a reason, right? That they're, they're, that they're not arbitrary, that they have, you know, strong, strong genetic basis, right? That, that it kind of makes sense that, in um you know basically that like of course people will prefer you know prefer luxury goods and and will prefer um 
Okay, I agree. Hold on, hold on. Let's let's talk about this. You know, what is a luxury good? Okay, like there are some flowers that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Is that because there's some immutable, culturally unchanging, you know, obvious from the molecular structure, like luxury element of that flower? No. No, it's because that flower has acquired a cultural status as a luxury good. I agree. Humans are biologically, we are status monkeys. Like we, we crave status. We will pursue it. hundred percent agree. Absolutely. But which things come to be seen as high status, luxurious luxury goods are by definition kind of superfluous. They are, you know, I'm, why am I blanking on like the, the evolutionary term for this? Um, they're basically like high cost displays that by definition accomplish nothing. Costly um, signaling. Costly signaling. There you go. Yeah. Stupid. I forgot that. Um, yeah. No worries, so like, no worries. that's the whole point of them is that they're like useless. Um, so, but the fact that they're basically useless also tells us they're mutable. We can like just choose a different useless thing. But what if we chose something that wasn't strictly useless? Like being married. Or having babies, right, right, no, or, and to be I clear, some communities do, in fact, do that. Yeah, I think that's a stronger counter argument. But uh, yeah, I, I maybe misstated their their argument a bit. But but essentially, that kind of like that this is going to be inherently sort of dysgenic, right? That that as you know, as you get essentially higher education, it's kind of un inevitable that you have more of a preference to kind of not having families that you have more of a preference for. Ah, uh, no. Okay. So I see that that's a very different argument and it's empirically false. So dysgenic okay. fertility is not a thing. Um, so if you look at men, men have quote unquote eugenic fertility in pretty much all societies everywhere. That is higher status. Men have more babies. Um, sure. uh, this, this is true almost everywhere across almost all times. The most you find is sometimes it's, it's flat. Okay. So like at least at the level of like male genetic material, like just the, the argument for dysgenic fertility is just, it's just, it's just wrong. But it's not usually, it's not usually on the male level, right? Usually. So then let's talk about females on the female side. um, There was a brief period. uh, There's no dysgenic fertility in like pre-industrial societies among women. Um, uh, we don't, we don't see that. Um, after I do this, I'm then going to do a little thing on dysgenic versus eugenic, but, um, okay. There's no quote unquote dysgenic fertility in pre-modern societies. If you look at cohorts in like the, um, like the born 1900 to 1950, 1960, you do see this quote unquote dysgenic fertility of, of, uh, lower fertility for higher educated women. Um, but if you look at cohorts born in like the seventies and now into the eighties, that effect is vanishing for younger cohorts. Um, we actually see increasingly flattening fertility across women's, um, educational statuses. Um, uh, so that this idea of dysgenic fertility is basically based on the experience of like two generations of women. Um, and there are two generations of women who are experiencing the period of women's rise in education. And so there was hyper-selectivity into education based on dispositions. As education is becoming more universalized, those effects are fading um, uh, because they were never real to begin with. 
Um, right. So, now, so the argument here is that you have a selection effect. You know, education is correlated. That, that essentially the causation is backwards. Yeah, right? the, yeah, the yeah, Women yeah, who yeah. don't want to have children, so, they're going into education. Yeah, so this just isn't um, like, this isn't, like, this was never, quote unquote, genic. Okay, like the differences that we are observing by education, um, this 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 was not like some like long term sorting pattern by genetics. Uh, this was just like basically that some people, uh, when education was highly selective, you know, the people who ended up in it were very non random. Um, and as education is becoming more universal, uh, you know, we're seeing a flattening. Um, right. That, that's interesting. Now, uh, yeah. across all periods, it is true, um, that, uh, that, um, uh, well, actually, let me, let me walk this back. Um, yeah, take your time. Don't worry. Bashirian math basically tells us that there's one thing that will never be long run, uh, like genetically correlated. And that is reproductive fitness. And what I mean by that is any strong differences in like reproductive ability weed out. Okay. Like they can't persist. Um, And so in the long run, family size should not be heritable. Family um, size should not be heritable. Yes. Um, because um, oh yeah, yeah, because because the because right. the higher family size just outweighs exactly. Yeah. In the long run, is not heritable. In practice, we observe it is. That's weird. That's Why is that? Um, there's a lot of research on this in genetic studies, like GWAS and also kinship studies and stuff like that, um, of genetic determinants of fertility outcomes. Virtually all the genetic determinants we can find relate to um are first of all they're not very g loaded right so they're not highly iq correlated um uh, but they are related to certain personality traits like extroversion um uh and uh, and to some extent neuroticism um and a little bit risk preference um negatively related to neuroticism right that's what i would expect yeah 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 yeah. okay okay um uh, yeah, and one of the strongest predictors of low fertility at the individual level is diagnosis with a mental illness. Um, mm, any kind of right. any ki- any kind of mood, behavioral, or mental disorder has a similar effect on fertility as like a congenital deformity. Um, oh my! Um, uh, there's great data on that from like this huge, massive population study of Swedish and Finnish women, um, where they have reasonably good kind of quasi-experimental controls as well. Um, Right. Has that relationship changed in in recent times? Sorry. Um, You know, I don't think they show it. They only have a couple of cohorts they can look at. So I don't know. Right. Um, This seems like an enormously interesting question to me. Yeah. So, but but the point of this is what we know is, first of all, we do observe that family size is heritable on the timeframes we can measure. We also know it cannot be heritable in the long run. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the selection pressures on family size probably change frequently throughout human history. Okay? Because kind of your Fisherian equivalence depends upon the idea that selection pressures are stable. If instead selection pressures vary, then you can get 
heritability across, you know, two, three, four, five, ten generations. Um, so what that tells you in turn is that predicting any kind of long-run change in fertility is going to be really hard because the selection pressures that in fact drive family size change. Optimal family size is not universal throughout human economic, cultural, demographic history in terms of the optimal size for passing on your genes. Um, and so uh, we should expect volatility forever in family size as we have observed throughout our past. Right. Yeah, I think that, hmm, so there's like a worry of, or, or maybe you're not doing this. Maybe this is just my intuition of kind of drawing too much of a pattern by applying kind of evolutionary logic to the present day. Um, yeah, I don't think you're necessarily doing that, but um, maybe that was kind of my mental model of this. Uh, and that's why it's sort of wrong. Um, yeah, so... You mentioned you mentioned earlier that maybe in the long run, the greater term is going to be technological changes. I'm still somewhat skeptical of that. What's your case for it? Um, it's not that I'm saying technological changes will be a game changer, um, but you know it's the type of thing that maybe could be. Um, I do think there are some strong arguments to think that there are no nearby technological breakthroughs that are going to radically change the fertility dynamic. So let's go through a couple plausible candidates. Um, one is just, you know, radically improved IVF or something. Um, the reason that won't work uh, is because um, uh, the reason people don't have kids in their 40s is not that they don't, that they can't. Um, their fertility rates of women in their 40s are nowhere near maximum biological potential for women in their 40s. The reason people don't have kids in their 40s is because having kids in your 40s means, you know, like that you're trying to play catch with your kid in your 50s and 60s, which is just harder. Oh, my. Um, it means that you are in your 90s for your grandkids. OK. Oh my. Um, it means that you never see your grandchild's wedding. OK. Um, so, like, that's why people don't have kids in their 40s, because the lifetime line. Even if you can biologically have fertility in your 40s, the other parts of your life calendar don't shift, okay? Now, okay, so maybe we need radical life extension technology. Okay, yeah, radical life extension technology, but what will that do? Well, with radical life extension technology, you will have kids later in life, okay? You'll spend yeah, more of your of early healthy years. Like, like, so all these things do is they just shift the same thing later. As long as you don't get status from kids, you don't change your family size. Okay. You just bump it. Um, okay. Let's talk about a different kind of technology instead of like life extension and IVF or something like that. Let's do growing babies in vats. This is a popular one with like your Silicon Valley nutcase crew. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what if we grow babies in vats? Will that increase fertility? No, it will not. We have a good test case. Huh. Um, there Me is, too? there's this, uh, <laughs> literature on motherhood wage penalties. What happens to a woman's wages when she has kids? This is one of the biggest costs of fertility. Raising a child, more than half the cost of raising a child is the opportunity cost of lost wages for a mother on average. There's a huge cost. Talk to any family having kids and the question of, you know, childcare versus, you know, staying home from work is a huge question. Um, so we can compare the motherhood wage penalty 
of women who have a child via gestation versus women who adopt a child. Okay. And guess what? Oh, I see. It's the same. They have the same motherhood wage penalty. Gestation is not the biggest cost of having a child in a society where maternal mortality is quite low. Okay. In a high mortality society, yes. But in a rather low maternal maternal mortality society, gestation is not the main bottleneck of fertility. Child rearing is the main bottleneck. And that is labor intensive. It is emotionally intensive. And if you try to replace the labor of child 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 rearing with like a robot, that doesn't solve the problem either. Because why do you have babies? Well, one reason is to accrue status. But the other reason is because hanging out with your kids is kind of awesome. Right. Like (laughs) it's fun. Like there's like almost nothing in my life that's more fun than like, like yesterday I just like had a tea party. It was father's day. Right. So like yesterday I just like had a tea party with my older daughter for like an hour. We just sat around and I made like a a long Jang tea um, that I got from a a friend in China a while back. Um, And I'm a tea snob. So I like, I like very fancy teas. Um, And we just like made tea for the afternoon and had a little tea party. And it was wonderful. Like just like, like father's day heaven for me. Okay. Um, uh, Like, replacing time with your kids with like automation or with like cheap service service sector immigrants reduces the cost of child rearing, but it also reduces the benefits. Like the point of children is to be with them. So um, we should not expect like, you know, capital substitution in child rearing is going to be pronatal because yeah, it'll reduce the cost, but it'll reduce the benefits. Um, now there's some automations, like, you know, so every parent wants a break sometime. So if you could somehow automate some of it, you might do some, but there is a real threshold on that. Like if you're at the point where you've got robots good enough to like automate child rearing, then you're probably automate, you're probably approaching like Star Trek automation utopia anyways. And so parents have a lot of free time that they're going to want to spend with their kids. Um, yeah. and again, we have a test case for this in the Gulf States where people are stupidly rich and they only work on average of like two hours a day. Parents huh. spend tons of time with their kids. Okay. When people get tons of free time, uh, they tend to invest it in their kids. Now, also those are culturally unusual places, whatever. But the point is like, you know, maybe there's a technology I'm not envisioning. I'm willing to accept that. Um, I'm, you know, stipulated. So that's why like, I can say maybe you can imagine some kind of radical technological breakthrough offsetting all this stuff and sort of changing the, the fitness optimal family size. Um, but right now we're not on the edge of any breakthrough technology that's going to radically alter, um, the dynamics of, of childbearing and child rearing because the childbearing centered technologies don't change the fundamental life timeline problem. And child rearing technology might reduce the costs, but it reduces the benefits. Um, so ultimately, we are locked in the question of fighting a status war. Um, and I've talked so much about status, but it would be political malpractice if I didn't say also like economic policies can do a lot on the margins. Like, I think it's totally worthwhile to try to increase fertility by like another 0.2, 0.3, 0.4 kids. And that's the range where like economic policy stuff can actually do a lot on that margin. Huh. That, 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 that's interesting because 
Um, yeah, yeah I, I think that before, or, or I should say, on the technology front, that that was kind of my initial position. So maybe I'm maybe I'm more convinced that, or or I'm just doubling down on my expectation that technology will actually kind of not really address um, not really address falling birth rates. But uh, yeah, going on going on economic interventions. Uh, yeah, yeah, we haven't we haven't talked much about that. W- what are the what are the economic interventions? What are what are the kind of relative, uh, what are the kind of relative uh, expectations that we can have of that? Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of economic interventions that countries have tried. Um, you've got kind of your, you know, your your vanilla ones like you know subsidized childcare, more maternity leave, maybe a child allowance. Um, then you got like your your kind of more creative ones, like your like big tax exemptions for big families, parity specific child allowances, lump sum baby bonuses at birth, um, you know, educational discounts. Those those are a little more creative. Um, then you've got like your your like kind of your starting to get kind of like red pilled on fertility things, like you know, <laughs> like like gigantic like mortgage subsidies for big families or like loan forgiveness, mm. big loan forgiveness things. Um, or like, you know, pre-commitments, like you take out, like Hungary did this, right? Where you take out like a $30,000 loan when you get married. And as long as you have children within a certain window, chunks of it are forget are forgiven. So like basically you put yourself in debt and then the government forgives chunks of it as you have kids, which is, it's kind of weird. That's um, a very interesting economic So it's, setup, a, it's yeah. a very weird commitment device. It seems to have worked. It's like the first thing that, that they did that actually worked. Um, and, and, you know, there's a good reason for that front load a ton of cash and get people to commit. Um, Generally speaking, if you want to throw money at the problem, the most efficient way to do it is front load a ton of cash. So like the more money you throw early in that baby's life tied to that baby, the more babies you get per dollar you spend. Okay. Hmm, Um, In general, the way I like to explain this is what you should assume is that um, for every percentage point of the total cost of child rearing that your policy covers, you will increase fertility by that percent as long as you don't pay for it by hurting families in some other way and as long as you don't reduce the benefits of child rearing in some other way. So let me give you an example. Let's say it costs $500,000 to raise a child, which is pretty reasonable when you include the opportunity cost of lost wages, education costs, whatever. Um, if you give a benefit worth, worth $5,000, which is a $5,000 check to a family when a baby's born, that's reducing their net costs by 1%. So that might increase fertility by 1%. But what if you paid for it by increasing middle-class tax rates by a proportional amount? Well, that's going to increase fertility for people at the lower income and reduce it for people at the higher. Okay. Now, also, a $5,000 lump sum, because the cost of child rearing is actually asymmetrical with income, you actually didn't evenly increase it across all groups. Okay, what if instead you paid for that with a new tax where you charge single unmarried people by, you know, an extra 1%? Well, that's not going to land on very many parents, so that's kind of a clean transfer to parents. And also that also might encourage more people to get married. Okay. Um, so that might be different. So you have to think about the funding mechanism. What if you pay for it through debt? Well, it's clean transfer for current parents, but it may impact future parents. You get Ricardian equivalents, all this stuff. Um, okay. Now that's fiscal policy. 
um, that front load a lot of cash and pay for it in a way that doesn't hurt other parents. So Hungary did all these pronatal policies, but they paid for it by cutting other family benefits. So they didn't get a lot of family fertility increase until their most recent wave in the last four years or so. They increased their family benefits and they actually didn't and they paid for it in other ways. Um, basically debt. Um, so that uh, their more recent policies have worked better because they didn't cut other family benefits. Um, okay. That's fiscal policy. But then you get non-fiscal policy. You know, one of the biggest costs families face is um, uh, is housing. So how can you do reduce housing costs? Well, you can reduce housing costs by liberalizing zoning and letting people build where they want. Um so, you know, Yimby, yay, build, and that's going to get you uh, more babies. We have good kind of quasi-experimental studies on this, dealing with changes in laws, uh, exogenous shocks to mortgage interest rates, stuff like that, that show that, yes, when you exogenously reduce housing, reduce housing costs, people have more babies. Um, yeah, that'll help. Also, that doesn't cost the government money. In fact, it may increase economic growth and increase revenues. So build, baby, build. Um, then you get things like educational yeah. timeline. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people want kids, but there's also socially normative educational certifications that people want to get, uh, finding a way to get them their certifications of the same quality, but earlier in life, we need educational innovation that can compress the same amount of human capital development in fewer years of schooling. So notice what I'm saying. I'm not saying yes, that's great. Get, keep women in the kitchen. Okay. It's not what I'm saying. Telling women to stay in a kit to stay in the kitchen in a world where they see their peers getting more education isn't going to work. <laughs> okay, right. this is not. Um, invidious comparison is a thing. Um, uh, what you want is educational innovation to help people achieve the same socially normative certifications, licenses, degrees, whatever, but in fewer years. We want to waste less of your life. Um, yeah, that is, you know, I'm not an education expert, but that, that's a big area where we, you know, where we need innovation, um, and, uh, and where we haven't gotten very much. So in, you know, so these are areas like there's, there's a lot of levers and earlier on, I talked about, you know, there's not a silver bullet and this is what I'm talking about with a pronatal coalition. Um, you know, you right, need a coalition right. that will say, yeah, let's get a baby bonus and see how much juice you get out of that. And then when you run out of that, say, okay. Next thing is, hey, a lot of our welfare policies penalize marriage and childbearing for working class people. And that's true. Huge marriage penalties for working class parents. And that has a huge antenatal effect. There's good empirical quasi-experimental evidence showing our means-tested programs punish marriage for working class people. Because they punish marriage for working class people, they create single parenthood um, and they actually suppress fertility in the long run. Um, uh, so we need to fix the marriage penalties in means testing. Okay. Once we do that, okay. We got a little more fertility out of that. We got a little more marriage out of that. What do we do next? Oh, you know what? We need to fix the educational timelines because that's suppressing fertility for kind of, you know, middle-class and upper income people. Let's fix that. Okay. Now we've gotten all we can get out of that. What can we do? Well, we need to, you know, liberalize zoning. Okay. You don't have to do it in this order, but you see what I'm saying? Like there are a lot of levers where you might get, you know, you might get 0.05 kids out of each of these levers right? Or 0 0.025 kids. But if you pull all of them, you work your way back up to like 1.8. Okay. Maybe 1.9. These are great numbers. <laughs> I'd love to be at these numbers. These numbers are a right. lot closer to what people say they want for their life. Um, 
So yeah, and then, you know, beyond all that, as you do those things, to build the political coalition, you're going to need cultural change. And the cultural change also has an effect in its own right. So these things all work together in a virtuous cycle. Right. So, so what's the political environment looking like for um, kind of pronatalism right now? Um, I, I'm in a bunch of circles that are kind of maybe adjacent to it, but uh, oh, it's you improving. Certainly, know better than it's me. getting it's getting better and better around the world. The UN formally tracks how many countries are officially pronatal. Every time they've surveyed this, the share rises um, because more and more countries are realizing this is a problem. Um, demand for my services as a pronatal policy consultant are always rising. Uh, there is bread on my children's table. Um, and if there are any, uh, anybody listening who, uh, wants advice on how to develop pronatal policy, my firm is called demographic, uh, intelligence. And I also work for the Institute for family studies. Hit me up. Um, got to do the pitch. Um, but the point is, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a growth market, um, now, one of the problems with this market is there's a lot of bad actors in it. So you get oh, people huh. who are like, I'm pronatal for white people. Um, <laughs> I'm pronatal for smart people. Um, uh, you know, you get actors who they're not really pronatal. They're actually antinatal for the majority of the population of the world. Um, and so they don't actually want to promote a broad pronatal coalition. Right, they're opposed to political effectiveness because they're opposed to a mass market pronatalism. Okay, the result of this is that it, the only viable strategy for pronatalism is a popular pronatalism. Right, you have to have a pronatalism that credibly commits to wanting everybody to have more babies. Um, if you don't have that, you don't have a path to electoral and cultural success. Um, and, in, and crucially you do have, you do have actors who, you know, you, you get these like kind of, you know, race realist types who are like, yeah, I'm pronatal, more white babies. Um, and, and they kind of poison the well on pronatal policy, frankly, like, like, um, I, if, if they would like shut up, go away and learn to stop being racists, we would have a lot easier time building coalitions for pronatalism. Um, uh. Um, I don't know. I think there's a kind of like motivated, you know, nut picking there. Right. I don't think, I think like most pronatalists are like not very online and are basically kind of like um, normy, normy parents. Right. Yes I don't and think no. there's very much of any. No, it's not nut picking. I mean, first of all, yes, there's nut picking, but it's nut picking that happens in the room when policies are being written. So like when I sit down and I'm talking to, you know, some staffers and we're writing a piece of legislation you know, and I say, Hey, you could do this. And they'll say, well, you know, but that's what racists want. So like, it's, it's something that causes changes in legislative language. So but like nut picking happens. So like nuts poison the well for everyone. So they should stop being nuts. Um, like acting, acting like fringe actors don't have an influence on mainstream politics. It's just wrong. Um, they do. Uh, but secondly, um, there are a lot of normie pronatalists who for perfectly reasonable reasons are like, well, I don't want to do this because it might encourage, you know, single moms to have kids or dysgenic fertility, right? It might be low educated. Yeah. yeah, the, the, That was kind of like the mainstream or like the, the, the version of it. That's yep. like mainstream is kind of like the, the, the success yeah. sequence. Yeah. Right? And like, we need to get rid of that. Well, it's sorry. Let me rephrase that. It's not that we need to get rid of the success weeks, success, that success sequence. It's fine. Whatever. But 
we need a pronatalism that understands the, that the alternative to single parenthood is not success sequence. The alternative to single parenthood is abortion. Okay. Like that's, that's the decision. Um, when you get to that point, the question is have the baby kill the baby. Okay. That's the decision. Um, not have the baby like go to college and have a happy life. Um, uh, so, and I mean, you know, we have reasonably good studies of, of women, you know, randomly kind of semi-randomly denied abortion. Um, and like women who just barely get an abortion versus women who just barely denied it. Like the women who just barely get an abortion don't have like amazingly positive life outcomes or something like this. It's not like if they avoid single parenthood that now their, their life is all wonderful, peachy keen. Um, uh, so, um, uh, um, you know, we need a pronatalism that kind of accepts the fact that if you, that to encourage fertility, a lot of people are going to be having fertility who like might not be world-class parents, uh, might not look like us, might not look like you, uh, you know, they might not go to Yale, um, and that's fine. Um, uh, you know, some of them might have Down syndrome, uh, and that's fine. Um, uh, you know, we, it doesn't work to have, you can't be like pronatalism asterisk. Okay. Like people smell the asterisk, they smell it. And like in the world we live in, like fertility politics have so much toxicity wrapped into them. Uh, like there's so many questions asked about like, about race, about eugenics, about all this different stuff that like if people smell an asterisk at all, like they're done talking to you. Um, the, the conversation yeah, is yeah, dead. To, to me, that, that just seems like a conflict theory thing, right? It just seems like that, you know, the enemies of, of pronatalism are going to be enemies of pronatalism and they're just coming up no, with whatever. They're not. That they're... You talk to normie people. I go to the park. Okay. I go to the park, sure. talk to parents. Okay. And you know, they know what my job is. We get talking about it and they'll, you know, they smell it out, right? They're like, wait, so you like, you know, you think we should, um, you think we should like have more babies? Yeah. Yeah. I think we should. But like, you know, like literally the first question that like totally normal park parents will ask is like, but like, isn't that kind of racist? Can't we just have immigrants? Like that is what normal people ask on their first question. Okay. So then you have to be like, here's why it's not racist. Actually, the people who have the biggest gap between their fertility desires and their fertility outcomes are non-white people. The main people who I anticipate benefiting from pronatal policy are like non-white people. Um, white people will also benefit. Yes. But like pronatalism, because the average non-white person is younger than the average white person, pronatal, pronatalism in America would actually accelerate the racial diversification of America. Okay. Um, like point blank, it will. The math works out. That's how it works. The lower our birth rate goes, the longer we stay white. Um, which is why super racist people, a lot of them are actually not super pronatal um, because they've done the math too. Um, so uh, like normal people ask these questions. It's not a crazy online woke thing. Racism and concern about it is totally normal and mainstream. People are freaked out by eugenics. People are freaked out by other people messing around in their reproductive lives. They want to know that pronatalism is about helping normal people live normal lives with a few more happy kids, not like the government, like, you know, breeding super soldiers or the government, like intervene, like 
that's what they want to do. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, this is, you know, this is a kind of luxury belief thing, right? I, I kind of agree with the earlier status point that most of this is kind of culturally driven. That what do you mean? Kind of, you know, the average voter is kind of downstream of like media, media preferences that basically like, I don't know, I'm kind of skeptical. Like, as you know, right, none of these, none of these things are grounded in reality, right? Like, you just made the case for that. I, I do think most of it is just, you know, and that most of it is just a reflection of elite preferences. That if Okay, let me put it this way. In public opinion polling... Then they're going to make up whatever narrative they need to be anti-natalist. No, no. In public polling, if you ask people, um, do you think the government should, you know, have a policy to increase the birth rate? The share of people who say yes is very low. Okay, it's like, I think it's like, in the most recent polling I saw on this, which is private polling, but whatever... Um, I think it was like 20% of people in the U.S. said yes. But if you start that by saying surveys show that, you know, American women are on average having, you know, you know, 0.7 fewer children than they say they want. And that, you know, 45% of women end up their reproductive years not having the family size they desire. The share of people who say that they want more kids or, the, the, or sorry, the share of people who say that the government should support pronatal policy almost doubles. Okay. Like making functionally liberal mass market pronatalism for everyone arguments has a dramatic effect at your potential coalition size among normal people. Okay. Because normal people really hate racists. Um, I don't know. Like, like, I don't know how much this is just basically like poll engineering versus like practical support for policy. Look, I'll like, tell you, like, go around to a park. Well, I guess, do you have kids? Uh, no, I, okay. I, I am probably a lot younger than you. You okay. know, then, I, I then, would be maybe a little you, bit worried. Then I, you, yeah. uh, then you can't, yeah. you can't do, um, uh, you can't do the, the park survey cause you'll be a creeper, but like, sure. Just sure. go around, ask normal people. You will find like, this is like, these are very normal concerns. Um, uh, it's not weirdos and yes does the media feed into this somewhat yes but like reproduction is something everyone has an opinion about okay fertility like when i go to a party like when my sociology peers in my department go to a party and they're like oh i talk about like political radicalization people are like i have no idea what that is i don't care their eyes close over when i go and i talk about like i research how many babies people want everyone has an opinion Okay, like I have the mm-hmm. most sure. like mass market research thing you could ever hope for. Um, everybody has an opinion. Everyone wants to give their piece. Everybody has an opinion about why other people's opinions are wrong. The parent wars are like intense, like about parenting style and how mm. you parent and whether you give your kids peanuts and all this stuff. Like this is something people have strong opinions on. They are extremely well right. informed about it. Um, it is not just online woke stuff parent discourse is like not so high information well, well i i'd be a little skeptical of you, you know like the, with especially with the replication failures um I, i'd be pretty skeptical that they're informed as in you know like actually believing correct things on it but um yeah i definitely i definitely agree you know like i, I this is obviously quite a bit of selection bias, but the kind of people, older people I know are certainly, you know, w- w- when I say older, I mean kind of like middle-aged people. They're, they're certainly like paying attention to, uh, to, to parenting stuff. I, I agree with you there. 
Um, right. So, so, so forming this this kind of political coalitions. So, so you see this as more of a kind of like uh, a kind of mass market thing, and more of a kind of you know like um, for example, like going on. Um, I I forget the exact name of the podcast, but the the, the New York Times podcast, like like this. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so, so this is a basically a kind of widespread. Um, I don't know. I, I, my suspicions of it basically come from like uh, I, I'm pretty suspicious of the kind of like public narrative of policy change versus the kind of like private narrative of policy change or the kind of elite narrative of policy change, which is basically that you do like you, you do like Washington lobbying, right? I mean, that's also my revealed preference as well. Yeah, um, I mean, both where matter. You basically, lobby for policy you know, change internally lobbying works and lobbying works because lobbyists come in with firepower and the firepower they come in with is that they can credibly claim to legislators that they can impact their ability to be reelected. Okay. How can they do that? Money or votes. So for example, why isn't pro why does pronatalism only have a very small number of public advocates in DC? It's because we don't have money and we don't have votes yet. And they're like point right. blank, like there are people who have polled this. The reason I know is because I've seen the polls and they straight up tell you in the meetings, like there's not like, like there's not yeah, a donor, there's not, the votes. there's not a donor and there's not a vote. So like, like what's like, I agree with you in principle, but like I can only do this if it's a really low cost margin. There are a few policymakers, somebody like, you know, Mitt Romney and like the Utah guys, they obviously have a constituency. Um, they've got yeah, the votes. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's a couple of these like kind of new conservative types like J.D. Vance or or um, Marco Rubio is getting into this now. Or um, uh, you yeah, can imagine Holly. somebody like Holly um, that they're doing this. But even then, like, you know, they're they're um, you know, they have to be, you know, they have to be responsible about this. Right. Like um, they can't just go off crusading on pronatalism because like the votes aren't there and the money's not there. Um, and so for those of us who want to see the elite story work out, you have to give your lobbyist weapons. Okay. And to give your lobbyist yeah. weapons, you either need money or votes. Um, you know, the money will come, you know, and I, and I'd like to see both. Like, you know, I, I, I'd love for my corporate clients to understand their self-interest in fertility. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'd like, uh, I'd like, uh, public culture that promotes this. So it's not that I don't think the elite theory of change is true, but it's that like, elites respond to the incentives that they're given and those are basically money and votes and votes kind of depends on some degree of political coalition building uh in some kind of semi-mass public yeah okay i i think i understand uh, yeah i understand where you're coming from from a lot more uh much better now it, it it's basically a position of like yeah there's there's a smaller constituency for this than i thought you need the kind of build up there there's not as much existing infrastructure um yeah um i i can be I, i'm convinced of that uh like just that, just that as a, just right a, as me. a practical example if you're in a republican party and you take a pro-choice position there's a very real lobby that will yeah, yeah, crush you sure. and they have the votes okay but if you're yeah. in a republican primary and you take a position on pronatalism it doesn't do anything for you one way or another Right, yeah. Not yet. 
but I yeah, think it so will. Is, so have you found, are, are you finding any inroads with um, essentially people who want to do the, um, uh, essentially people who want to, uh, who are very enthusiastic about uh, pronatalism in the Republican Party? Uh, so the obvious one is Republicans, but there are Democrats as well. Um, you get people on the left. There's two people on the left who are interested in a lot of this stuff or two groups of people. One is people who are convinced by basically the liberal argument. And that is people want to have like two or three kids. They're not having two or three kids. The reason they're not having two or three kids is because of obstacles, barriers, and bad things in their life. We should fix those bad things. Government is a tool for fixing bad stuff. Let's do it. So like an example of that is somebody like Matt Iglesias, right? Um, right, right. Yeah. One so, billion Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. His fertility chapter, if you look at the footnotes on it, it's basically just like limestone, 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 limestone. Um, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it, was, it was quite entertaining. Um, so, um, like, you know, that that's an argument that I find. There's a lot of kind of like, I would say like kind of, you know, Iglesias style liberals, or you could even say like Atlantic Monthly style liberals, let's say, um, who find that argument reasonably compelling. And so like if a Republican were to put forward like a pronatal child allowance proposal, like they'll vote for it. And they're like, that's great. I love that energy. Then you get kind of your instrumental pronatalists on the left who are like, look, I want to eliminate child poverty. A child allowance is a great way to do it. If pronatal Republicans will give me some extra votes. Great. Or you get like Yimby liberals, right? Where they're like, look, yeah, many I want, cases. I want like cycling urbanism. To get that, I need densification. To get that, I need liberalized zoning. Um, if that reduces housing costs and gets more babies, great. So my view is that right now pronatalism isn't big enough to be a decisive player. But what we can do is we can show up and give some extra firepower and deliver a couple unexpected votes from the right for programs that are often actually a little bit more left coded. Um, or we can tweak a poll. We're big enough. We have enough people that we can sometimes tweak policy language in a slightly more pronatal direction. We can sometimes nudge a little bit. Um, we're not yet big enough to be a veto point, but we can help shape a lot of the way a lot of these debates develop. Um, so that's, that's my, uh, um, uh, my view on where we are right now, but that's changing. I mean, Every year brings more overtly pronatal policy interest from more corners of the world. Um, so I, I mean, this this is the future. As fertility keeps falling, it's going to be more and more of an interest. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I I'm not sure where to balance the kind of like base rate versus what has to happen. Right, right. The the, the what has to happen argument is you know um, as you get more economic pressures from pronatalism or sorry from from um, antinatalism from declining birth rates right, whether intentional or not, then you, you're going to get more pressures to address the problem. That, that's the kind of like rational um, version of politics. Um, and then the other one is just like the base rate, right? It's like, you know, th there's not much of a constituency right now. It takes a lot of effort to kind of build these things up to build up both the formal in terms of politicians, in terms of bureaucracy and informal in terms of think tanks, in terms well, of- Well, I'll tell you what, what's um, one of the most likely outcomes here. Yeah, go if, ahead. If the Dobbs decision sticks around for a long time, all these mm. pro-life organizations, they need a cause to continue existing. Okay, like, it's going to be very difficult for, like, 
what are they going to do with their time now that they've beat abortion? Now, yeah, there's still abortion laws to pass, but like the day's quickly coming where like a lot of states are like where we're going to reach a new kind of state level stasis on this. And there'll still be work to be done, but like a lot of these abortion organizations, especially in red states, they're going to need a way to keep energy up. And I think a lot of them are going to switch to various kinds of pronatalism. And you already saw that with Americans United for Life came out with this make birth free proposal. Like basically, you know, have, hmm. have universal coverage of all births in America. Um, like they're already getting into this. I think a lot of pro-life organizations are going to gradually dip their toe more and more into various kinds of soft pronatalism. They're already dispositionally in values terms. They're already there. Um, and a lot of them are going to need kind of a political casus belli, um, particularly in red states. And so I think we're going to see a lot of shift on that if Dobbs sticks around. If Dobbs dies and we get a new row, then they'll go back to fighting that. Um, but if Dobbs sticks around, I think we're going to see a, a lot of pro-life organizations uh, get more into pronatalism writ large. Hmm, that, that, that's interesting. I think I think maybe it's a bit more, it's a bit too optimistic for me because I, I, mean, I kind of already found this more psychological. It. Sorry? They're already doing it. I mean, you already see this. They've already started advocating in policies that they never touched before Dobbs. Um, so it's, it is happening. The only question is it's a question of how far it goes, but it is literally happening. Right. It's right a now. question of magnitude, right? Like what percentage of the support for um, for overturning Roe v. Wade is basically the kind of outcomes driven level and what percentage of it is just, you know, like I've seen the photos, like it, it is unsettling. Yeah. How much of it is aesthetics yeah. versus how much of it is, um, you know, the underlying kind of pronatalist um, ideology. I don't mean yeah. this in a bad way, no, 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 I mean no, it's yeah, actually yeah. in a positive way. Yeah, no, I mean, it's an open question, um, remains to be seen, but, you know, I think there will definitely be some rising support from that corner. Okay, so, so that's that's pretty optimistic. Um, we've been here for almost three hours. Uh, I did get to the end of my prep, so, so that's good. Uh, would you like to answer the last question of the show? Sure. Yeah, so the last question of the show, everyone gets the same question is uh, what is something in the world that we haven't talked about yet that is too much chaos and needs more order and something in the world that's too much order and needs more chaos? Something that is too much chaos and needs more order. Um, Something that is too much chaos and needs more order is the spiritual life of Western man. And the specific order that it needs, the chaos that it needs to escape from is the chaos of thinking that meaning is made by human choices, that we just kind of make it by assigning whatever meaning we like. And instead, we need to return to the idea that meaning was written into the fabric of reality by a being who loved it when he did it. And that being is God, who is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, look, you asked, so I got to go there. Um, and then something that is something that is this is an entire different podcast. But yeah, that's, that's something great. that is uh, yeah. too orderly that needs more chaos. So I said that what was too too chaotic and yeah, needed too, more too order, much chaos needs more order. Uh, was the spiritual life of Western man, um, yeah. and what is too orderly and needs more chaos is the mental life of Western man. Um, we uh, need more chaos there. Yes, we do. We have oh, so man. committed to the idea that. Uh, that we can uh, systematize, describe, and in some sense fully explain the world. Um, 
uh, that we have convinced ourselves that the accounts we give of the world, first of all, are fully mechanistic when, in fact, they're not. Um, and second of all, uh, that they not only tell us what is happening, but they tell us on a deeper sense the why. Uh, that is that we understand and know, and I think we need to allow more space in our minds for the possibility uh, that the world is chaotic, that random crazy stuff happens that doesn't have a good explanation, um, uh, and that in fact, uh, chaos might be a fundamental principle of the physical world that we attempt to explain. Um, and so I would say that our spiritual lives need greater order and our mental lives need a bit more um, appreciation for chaos. That's, that's a great way to end it. Thanks for coming on the show, Lyman. My pleasure. That was my conversation with Lyman Stone. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, as I said at the beginning, the best way to help us is to let a friend know, either in person or online. You can also help the show by subscribing, giving us a like, giving us a five-star review on any podcast app, a comment, or by subscribing to my Substack, either the free or paid version is good, and you can find the link for that below. You'll also find any links that we referenced in the show, and I'd be happy to hear about any comments or future guests for the show as well. Either way, I'll see you for another episode next Monday.